Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. It is 2021. I can't believe we finally made it. We had a three week hiatus from the UFC schedule. I went and fucked around and did whatever the hell I wanted, and uh, now we're back at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I managed to release a couple breakdowns over this break, uh, but here's the freaking podcast. It is literally the Sunday before I'm I'm dropping this podcast. Um, still a late night, still uh, still a night owl, um, but uh, but I'm enjoying it. I hope you guys are enjoying the new setup. Uh, there are still a couple decorative things I'm waiting for to come in the mail. Damn. Canada Post uh, slacking all my shit, but I completely redid the entire studio. Obviously, you guys can see it. You guys just have the the footage of me and and the new backdrop that I got. But uh, painted the new studio, switched around the the, uh, the artwork. Um, once everything comes in, I still got a couple more decorative things coming in. Like I said, once it comes in, I'm actually gonna do like a crib style uh, video of the entire studio and uh, and drop it for my Patreon members just to give them a little bit more incentive. But I'm looking forward to like showing it off. I still got a couple wires and stuff that I gotta hide, uh, clean it up a little bit. But uh, and yeah, one more decorative thing that I got to go on the wall behind me. But I'm really happy with how it came out. I, I love the color scheme. I, I love how everything came out. Um, just. I've been ecstatic in terms of wanting to, to to get this out for you guys and and show it off to you guys and show that you that like in 2021 I'm just trying to take it to the next level, uh, take it up even more. You know what I mean? I I feel like I was one of those guys that really took the MMA handicapping podcasting game to another level. Like most guys were just going out there and and releasing audio and and not really putting too much work into it. Where I felt like I I'm the one that really took it to the next level and really caused other people to just step their game up as well too and it's great for the community like we're getting better products we're getting better podcasts and better better things for to to help you the viewer like you know maybe not just physically like with how things look but just have a more professional look uh have more professional breakdowns and all that type of stuff and i feel like i'm definitely bringing that to the community so uh yeah, shout out to everybody that supported your boy. Shout out to everybody that, you know, gave me some solid comments and stuff on the, the Max Holloway and Calvin Cater um, breakdown that I already dropped. I, I I couldn't hold on to it. Like, I needed to show it to you guys as soon as possible. So I dropped that last week. Um, th- that footage was a little bit out of focus. I, I was still working on it. We're a one-man show over here, so I'm doing my best in terms of, uh, you know, fixing the lighting, fixing the focus. And now I feel like I've, I've definitely gotten everything uh, worked out and... and I'm happy with it. I'm I'm super happy. Shout out to everybody that that's been supporting your boy since day one. 2021 is definitely the year that I'm going to be able to take this thing to the next level for sure. I'm I'm I know I'm going to be able to start doing this full time in the next couple months too. So shout out to everybody that's been helping your boy with that. Um, specifically the Patreon members, you guys are awesome. You guys are making this so easy for me to 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 get my work done and and give you guys the best quality and and best perspectives uh, for these matchups. So it's fucking awesome. All right, let's uh, let's get the show going. Uh, first and foremost, let's do a quick betting recap of UFC Vegas 17, which was the December 19th event headlined by Wonderboy Thompson and Jeff Neal. That was another winning event for you boys. So we had, uh, first and foremost, we had the lock of the night play, which was Jose Aldo at five units at minus 149. Again, I, I told people all week, I was very surprised I was getting Jose Aldo better than minus 200. And luckily, we got him at minus 149, and he went out there and did the damn thing. A lot of people didn't think he would win the third round against uh, Marlon Vera, me being one of them too. And I'm kind of happy that he decided to go the backpack route and absolutely just control Marlon Vera for the entirety of that third round uh, and win that fight. So uh, that was plus 3.36 units there. 
Next up, we had uh, two units on Wonderboy Thompson at plus 100. That bet was a no-brainer for me. And uh, I knew, you know, as, uh, I, I knew for sure that fight was going to play out exactly like that. And I knew a minute into that fight, everybody else who, you know, was watching that fight and, and, uh, uh, was thinking about betting one way or another as soon as that fight started within a minute or you know a minute and a half everybody's like of course of course this fight is going to play out this way and it, that's exactly what happened for the majority of that five rounds i was hoping that we would get a one boy thompson finish later in the fight unfortunately i think he he blew his knee or something uh, did some sort of a knee injury kind of deterred him from really getting it going uh more in that fight but went out there had a solid performance and got the victory for us so that's another plus two units there also at 1.5 units on marcin tybura at plus 101 Again, another no-brainer of a of a bet for me there too. It, it took me until like fight day or or the day before the fight to actually make that bet. Um, but once I really talked myself through it and 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 got into it, I'm like, of course he's going to win this. The only liability is Greg Hardy round one KO. There's no way Greg Hardy's going to go out there <clears throat> and beat this guy over f- uh, 15 minutes. No way. Charlie Tybura, better gas tank, better overall fighter, better grappling, better wrestling. And we definitely saw that. I was hoping that we we're going to get the Tybura third round finish as I did have a prop play on that. That does not end up coming to fruition. Uh, but still, we get the plus 1.52 units on betting Tybura straight at those dog odds. And then lastly, my other dog of the night play, <clears throat> I had under two and a half units on Jillian Robertson and Tyler Santos. However, Santos goes out there and just wins a clean decision. Uh, that's minus one unit there. So all in all, plus five point, what is that? Five point eight seven units uh, with a sixty-two percent return of an, on investment. I thought that was a great uh, night, three and one on the night, solid profit, and a great way to end off the year too. Uh, talking about ending off the year, I had a very rough run from uh, middle of twenty nineteen all the way to like the first quarter of twenty twenty. Uh, and then in July, finally, I started really start to turn things around, end the year off on a plus 36 or 37 unit streak. Um, great, great way to end off things. Um, you know, I really felt like I fell into my groove finally once you started getting the second half of the calendar year under my belt. And uh, yeah, it showed. Everybody knows that I'm able to make these calls and have solid calls like the the Jake Collier call against Gian Volante, the Derek Brunson call against Edmund Shabazi, and the Gavin Tucker call for, against Billy Q, uh, you know, as the second last event of the year. I know I'm capable of these things. That's why people trust me. That's why I have over 220 patrons, uh, you know, throwing your boy five bucks a month just to, 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 to help support your boy and, and get some more insight into uh, the type of game that I that I play and the strategy that I have going into these UFC events. So, um, yeah, I'm happy with how I ended off the year, uh, plus 12.24 units in total in terms of ending off the year as a whole. But uh, from July to the end of the year, I was on a plus 36 or plus 37 unit run. So I'm happy with that as well, too. We're steaming into 2021 now. We got three straight events coming up. Um and I, I see a ton of opportunities. I'm not going to say that there's, there's value screaming at me or anything like that, but uh, but I do see that there's uh, some solid spots for sure. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this card and breaking it down for you guys. Um, yeah, before I get into it, I'm going to drop the Patreon plug as always. If you guys want to help your boy out, uh, five bucks a month gives you a ton of perks. Something new that I'm adding for this year as well too is the pay-per-view parlay for the patrons. So I'm going to be putting 5% of my uh, monthly take from Patreon. I'll be putting it on a four-leg parlay decided by the patrons uh, for every single pay-per-view. So if that parlay cashes, I'll be sending the winnings directly to a random Patreon uh, member 
uh, and they get to keep the winning. So, you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's a great incentive uh, to kind of just give back to everybody that's been supporting your boy. Uh, and, and yeah, I think it's a it's a fun fun way to do that. So not only is there that, there's the early access to the breakdown. So as you'll see, most of these breakdowns will be recorded earlier, uh, and they'll already be posted on the Patreon. Uh, so those people already had access to it. Uh, a ton of other things. We have a great Discord channel. Uh, early or sorry, we have all access to my, all of my official picks. I drop my picks to the public. Uh, the Friday before the fights, whereas on the Patreon, as soon as I make the bet, I post it. And the perfect example, I already made my lock of the night play for this January 16th card, uh, and they have access to it, but the line is definitely not the same as to when I dropped it. So uh, there's still time to get on it. Um, but yeah, can't promise the same line. That's all I'm saying. So yeah, the Patreon members definitely have it the best. I have the rest of the, the, the perks in the description below. So make sure you guys go check that shit out. All right. I'm done. Uh, let's get into the breakdowns again. Happy New Year to everybody. Hope you guys had a great holiday. And I can't wait to get this 2021 schedule underway. And it starts with this event here. So uh, check out the uh, breakdowns and uh, let's get it going. I'm excited. Let's go. Hope you guys enjoy it. Austin Lingo versus Jacob Kilburn. We got minus 220 on the 4-7 MMA product. Austin Lingo and plus 180 on Jacob Kilburn. Let's start off with Austin Lingo who last was in the octagon against Yusuf Zalal, and it's been a crazy run that Zalal has been on since then. I think he's had four or five fights since this Austin Lingo fight, but Lingo taking a bunch of time off, and now we're seeing him roughly a year, just under a year uh, later since his UFC debut. Now, he was 7-0 coming into the UFC, and he was the favorite, or roughly around the same type of favorite he was in this, he is in this fight. He was the same over Yusuf Zalal, um, and you know the fight just did not go the way that I expected it to. I believe that my my one of my plays that night was the under two and a half in that fight. However, we saw a very grappling heavy approach from Yusuf Zalal, uh, taking down Lingo almost time after time again and doing some good work from on top. And then even when the fight was on the feet, he did a really good job with his kicks, keeping Lingo on the outside. As we know that Lingo more often than not likes to get his punches going rather than you know working in that kicking range. So uh, that's why I really think the Austin Lingo dropped the ball. Most of his fights have been a victory via KO pretty early in his fights. He goes out there, he has dynamite in his hands. He's able to pretty much just clip anybody he wants and try to, and pretty much put them down. And I think um, given the stylistic matchup here against Jacob Kilburn, it almost plays right into his hand. I think we're going to see a, a, a bit of a firefight here, which is why one of the totals actually... Uh, pique my interest actually then picking a side here like now the under two and a half is at plus 115 and i think at plus money given the state the stat status of both guys and how they fight and the types of fighters that they are um i feel like they're both going to engage in the striking range and one of them is going to land uh, a bomb that could potentially put the other out now in terms of um how many times they've actually gone to a decision so we got jacob kilburn who's seen the scorecards twice in his career uh, whereas Austin Lingo has only seen it. I just want to confirm this number before I talk out of my ass. So the Yusuf Zalal fight, Phil Gonzalez, and Charles Williams. So three out of his eight fights have gone to a decision. Jake, Jacob Kilbert, on the other hand, uh, just confirming those numbers again. 
one, two, three, four, four out of nine fights. But given the style, like I said, given the styles of these guys, they're primarily strikers. They like to go out there. They like to throw those bungalows. Um, Lingo, on the other hand, I, I feel like he's more of a, a combination fighter. Uh, very great camp as well, too. Like I said, with Fortis MMA, these guys know how to train their guys. Uh, Safe Sayud is an absolute magician when it comes to working with these guys and kind of just developing solid game plans. I like what we're seeing from Lingo. Great combinations, great hands, uh, solid footwork as well too. Uh, and then Austin Lingo, or sorry, um, uh, Jacob Kilburn on the other hand, more of a one and done puncher. Like he he doesn't really throw many combinations, but he throws a variety of strikes, whether it's a kick, whether it's a teep, elbows, uh, spinning kicks, whatever the hell it is. But he doesn't seem to really throw it in too many combinations. <coughs> Now we've seen Austin, uh, sorry, uh, Jacob Kilburn have a couple opportunities to try to like, you know, have success. And uh, oh, sorry, I was actually looking at his amateur career uh, when I was talking about his decisions. But in terms of Jacob Kilburn's pro career, he's gone to a decision two, two times out of eleven fights. So again, I like the under two and a half. But uh, like I said, Jake Kilburn uh, likes to throw a lot of spinning stuff. We've seen him on the contender series lose via dart stroke to Bobby Moffitt. And then obviously we saw him in the UFC lose via triangle choke to Billy Q. Uh, it seems like his 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 kryptonite, kryptonite? <laughs> kryptonite is uh, guys that want to grapple. And I don't think that we're going to see that from Austin Lingo here. I think we're going to see both of these guys kind of try to show off their balls and and uh, and swing for the fences. Obviously not like stupidly, like a Don Fry type of uh, scrap. I can't remember the guy that he fought, but you guys know what fucking fight I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I, I'm not expecting them to just hold each other by the head and try to see who gets knocked out first. But I do think that we'll see these guys throw bombs. I doubt we'll see either of them kind of engage in that grappling uh, instance. More often than not, their fights uh, are in the stand-up realm unless their opponents really want to drag it to the ground like the Billy Q's and the Bobby Moffitts against Jacob Kilburn. Uh, and then Austin Lingo, the users of the law fight, is the perfect example of that as well too. So um, I, I like Austin Lingo to win this fight. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd be... 100% down to bet him at minus one, minus 220 though. I need to see more from him. You know, just going out there and knocking dudes out pretty quickly is just not not the way to really sell me. You know what I mean? Even the Phil Gonzalez fight where he won via decision, I just don't have access to that tape or that footage. So I'm not really sure how we went about actually securing that victory, whether it was through grappling, whether it was through striking, whatever it was. But, uh, you know, he, he's going out there and knocking dudes out. And I think he'd absolutely do the same thing against Jacob Kilburn here. But uh, I would rather bet the under two and a half just in case Kilburn lands some sort of bomb. Uh, but I do like Lingo to win this fight via KO. So uh, I think we'll see these boys come Kind of just throw bungalows uh throw you know more combinations from lingo maybe a better game plan from lingo as well too uh whereas jacob coburn will see him kind of just try to chip away and then wait to land that big big bomb so once again i'll go with uh austin lingo to win this fight via ko probably first or second round but i think the spot here would be the under two and a half at plus 115. sarah morass versus vanessa Mello. we got minus 240 on the Canadian, Sarah Morass, and plus 200 on the Brazilian, Vanessa Mello. Let's start off with Sarah Cheesecake uh, Morass, who's coming off a loss to Sajara Eubanks. She's actually won and four in her last five fights. Uh, the only victory coming to Liana Jojua in that amount of time, I believe that was back at UFC 242, where she was able to finish Liana Jojua late, you know, just a, just a grappling onslaught, and then, you know, a lot of perseverance and, and 
her ability. Now, she isn't the most comfortable on her feet, and she has some solid jiu-jitsu to back her her game up but in terms of like level of experience it blows Vanessa Mello out of the water like Sarah Morass was on the ultimate fighter uh you know she's fought a lot of tough competition including uh Macy Kiason and Lucy Pudilova but uh she, she's been around the game for a while now and for her to be this big of a favorite I think it's more so just the experience level not to mention also Vanessa Mello's not the greatest either too this is almost a a, a case of who's worse and i feel like uh sarah morass is just a little bit ahead of a uh, vanessa mello in terms of talent skill and obviously experience we're talking about a six and six opponent going up against a 10 and eight opponent that's the type of fight that we're getting on our hands here it's more than likely that whoever loses here is probably going to get cut from the ufc even though this is going to be the second loss in a row for sarah morass she just had so many opportunities in the ufc that i just don't see the ufc giving her another chance if she does end up losing here vanessa mello on the other hand she's already had three losses in a row she hasn't even gotten her hand raised in the ufc so the fact that she's even still around after three losses in a row in the ufc is a little bit mystifying to me so i'm absolutely certain if she loses this fight she's more than likely going to get cut as well too uh but in terms of skills and talents as we're talking about again sir morass uh, has that moving forward type of style doesn't mind you know eating some shots um to to try to get hers going but i think where she'll have the advantage is if this fight does hit the ground and i do think that's where it's going to end up going now even though tracy cortez was two of nine on takedowns against vanessa mello i still believe that uh, a little bit of the size had to do uh, had an issue in that in that fight uh you know tracy cortez normally fights at the weight class below however she did take that fight against vanessa mello just to get a, a fight in to begin with uh for that year because she had just gotten signed off the contender series that year and then she wanted a quick turnaround and the only opponent that she could get was vanessa mello at a weight class above so she did end up taking that i think that's sarah morass uh in terms of size we got five seven from sarah morass five five from vanessa mello 67 inch reach from uh, sarah morass 65 inch reach from Van from mellow so i think we could see a little bit of outpowering from morass in terms of being able to just you know muscle her to the ground uh push her up against the cage uh and just you know just just wear on her and i think that's where mellow's eventually going to break now i like uh you know the the last opponent that carol Rose, or sorry vanessa mello fought was carol hosa who shows great boxing great combinations and great footwork and she just battered up vanessa mello for the entirety of those 15 minutes i'm not saying that we're going to see the same type of performance from sarah morass here but uh, i feel like the, the the linear motion of vanessa mello with her striking very just plotting forward doesn't really cut angles just throws power in her shots and throws combinations which is decent uh but doesn't show much else other than that so unless we see a completely revamped game plan from vanessa mello i don't really see her winning this fight um with that said at minus 240 i am not touching sir morass at all like you need to give me pick em odds for me to even pick a side here in terms of actually betting it um obviously the sir morass side is the where the, the side that i'm leaning on uh and that's where i think she ends up winning so i think that she just just wears on mellow uh lands some good shots on the feet drags the fight to the ground or even in the clinch just kind of overpowers her uh she's got a little bit of a bit of a caboose on her too probably one of the bigger cabooses that we've seen in the ufc uh but she uses it well you know 
know she 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 has a she has a good base um she's again she's kind of strong too um but talent level is just not where you want to be uh you know especially when you're in the ufc these are probably more the bottom of the barrel in the division so i'll go with sarah i think she wins this fight again pushes up vanessa mellow against the cage uh accrues some control time lands some good shots on the feet but ultimately i think it's just vanessa mellow not being to that level um how she even got to the ufc is beyond me but uh yeah neither of them really are at that level where you're like okay they're a top 15 type of woman i'm not that uh, or fighter i should say i'm not going to say that but i will go with sarah morass to win this fight via decision Ramazan Amiv versus David Zavada. We got minus 260 on the Russian and plus 220 on David Zavada. So let's start off with Ramazan Amiv, who going into taping this fight, I initially thought that I was going to be making a lock of the night play five units, minus 250 on Amiv, but I'm sort of backtracking from that now. So don't get me wrong. I still think that he goes out there and does a has a solid performance. Um, I've always looked at him as a guy that has a very efficient MMA style. From his striking to his clinch game to being able to take opponents down, the guy does a, a really good job of mixing all those facets of MMA together and coming out on the on the winning end more often than not. He has a great record of 19-4. and four. He's been around the game since 2009 and has definitely accumulated a lot of experience in that amount of time. His only loss in the UFC up to this point is against Anthony Rocco Martin, but he's only been in the UFC for about five fights. He hasn't been the most active guy, which is a little bit of a detriment to him in my opinion, but he's slowly starting to get in there and, and trying to make a name for himself. Obviously, the setback to Anthony Rocco Martin has kind of extinguished the, the heat that was behind him going into that fight. However, uh, this fight against David Zavada should definitely help him bring that heat back. Now, my only concern here with Zavada is, well, not only, I have a couple of concerns here with, uh, sorry, I meant uh, Ramazan Amiv, is one, his volume and output seems to be lacking a little bit. He's usually striking in about the 30 strikes per fight range or per 15 minutes, that we should say. But uh, he's very like calm, cool, and collected type of striker where he's just waiting for his openings and then he lunges forward and lands a, a couple good shots. He mainly throws in two punch combinations, the one-two down the middle, but his two is very, very sneaky. Even when he throws it as a naked punch, it lands more often than not. Now, it's saying on UFC stats that he strikes at a 43% clip. Uh, however, uh, it, it seems like he's a little bit more effective given how often uh, he's landing that, that right hand especially. Uh, the way that he mixes in his clinch game as well with his striking is very impressive, as well as mixing in the takedowns to follow up those clinch positions is very impressive as well too. Uh, the issue that I have with his takedowns now is that sometimes he... he I'm not saying they're desperation shots per se, but I feel like they're more so shots that are, um, that that leave him open and, and and kind of prone to submissions at times. We see perfect examples of that in his Anthony Rocco Martin fight, where you know Martin's uh, in on a couple Kimura attempts. More often than not, people use Kimuras to 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 defend takedowns, but uh, you know Martin was quite close to completing one of those Kimura attempts. Now, even in the Nicholas Stolce fight, we see Amiv, you know, landed five takedowns in that fight. But more often than not, in those takedown attempts, he's ending up in a guillotine of Stolce. And Stolce obviously doesn't complete any of those submissions. But when you're going up against a high-level jiu-jitsu player like David Zavada, you have to be a little bit more mindful of where your neck is when you're trying to complete these takedowns. 
Now, let's go over to the Zavada side of things where Zavada, you know, he's a veteran. He has 20, uh, 22 fights in total now. This is going to be his 23rd fight. Just one fight less than Amiv, but he's been around the globe. Like, he's he, he had a solid uh, campaign with KSW before coming to the UFC. He dropped his first two fights in the UFC, but that first one to Danny Roberts, very, very close fight. The second one to Lee Jing Liang gets finished with just a, a couple of seconds left on the on the clock, in my opinion, or at least from what I remember. And then uh, the Abubakar Nurmagomedov fight, uh, you know, Nurmagomedov does not do a good job of, of securing that top position, allows Zavada to clear that shoulder and complete that arm triangle or sorry that triangle choke uh and, and he ends up with the with the submission victory now zavada very crafty on the ground high level jujitsu player and with the inefficiencies that i said with uh, amiv in terms of his takedowns uh i feel like this is a very sketchy spot for amiv if especially if he wants to go the grappling route now when he does establish that top position i'm talking about amiv here uh he is very effective from on top he has very solid ground and pound um he's able to really uh you know w with that length lanky frame that he has like his torso is very very long and the the amount of momentum he's able to ge generate when he's going for his ground and pound uh situations he generates a lot of power and he's able to like put a hurting on some of these guys now he's not really able to find finishes more often than not the guy's a bit of a decision machine and that's a little bit of an attribution to his uh safe style of fighting he doesn't really overextend himself to really get put out or to get submitted or anything like that uh but he does put himself uh close to those situations again the the, the takedowns against Stolce was very uh iffy for me uh in terms of kind of uh seeing how he racks up against a guy like Zavada um Zavada you know has potential still he's only 30 years old I feel like he still has some improvements that he can make in his game. And obviously that victory over Nurmagomedov puts a ton of confidence back into him, especially in a fight where it was probably a chopping block fight, where he probably would have got his pink slip if he didn't get the victory uh, against Nurmagomedov. And that was a tough task too, you know, going into Russia, fighting Nurmagomedov and and, and f fighting uh, Abubakar in his UFC debut was almost a sign that the UFC is like, you know what, let's throw in Zavada there, let's see how he does. Uh, but we do want to see Abubakar get the victory you know to carry on that Nurmagomedov lineage per se um unfortunately for the UFC Zavada goes out there gets the victory cashes as a plus 225 underdog and uh you know maybe not spoils the plans of the UFC but I'm sure that they they were in the Nurmagomedov business and not the David Zavada business but if the Zavada is able to go out there and spring another upset against a a solid uh, Russian prospect like Amiv, uh, maybe the UFC starts looking at Zavada a little bit harder. But uh, I think this is a good fight for Amiv in terms of being able to go out there and, and have a solid game plan in terms of striking, waiting for his opportunities and landing the better shots on Zavada, as I believe that a more technical striker like Anthony Rocco Martin would be able to solve the puzzle that is Amiv. I don't think Zavada has that type of striking skill and uh, the awareness in terms of dealing with a guy that's as efficient as Amiv, but he does have a a bit of power in his hand so if he lands on Amiv he could definitely hurt him something that Nicholas Tosa was able to do in that first round at the end of that first round against Amiv and also if this fight does end up on the ground uh, Zavada does have a good ground game as well too to potentially make things a little bit more competitive however I'm still siding with Amiv maybe not as a lock of the night play anymore but as possible as a possible um, parlay piece on one of my plays for this card 
you know, I wanted to go with initially a five unit minus 250 locker than I play here on Amiv, but I can't do that anymore after running the tape. I'm more comfortable with him as maybe like a one or 1.5 unit parlay piece with something else on this card because let's be honest, this card is a little bit chalky in some of these spots, especially in the spots that uh, I feel like guys have a better edge on, um, but still not to the level of playing them at minus 220, minus 250 as a, as a straight play and wagering, you know, the four or five units on the lock of the night play. So I do like Amiv here still. I think he gets the better of the striking exchanges, lands the better shots. Um, Zavada does seem to have a little bit of trouble when it comes to his cardio as well too. It seems to slow down a little bit later in his fights. And I think that's where Amiv could definitely take advantage later in fights as well too, whether it's, you know, getting the takedowns or, or you know, just getting the better of the striking exchanges. Amiv has never really shown any issues with his cardio and it seems definitely in check. And you would expect it to be in check especially for a guy that is as low output as he is so given the 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 cons on the Amiv side which are his low output um you know sometimes putting himself into uh submission prone oppor uh, opportunities for his opponents uh and then obviously uh not finding the level of competition that would really set him apart too that's the last thing i wanted to touch on in this breakdown so he's fought sam alvey middle of the pack kind of guy alberto mina who i don't even know if he's in the ufc anymore uh stefan sekulich who was making his ufc debut i believe on short notice in that fight uh anthony roko martin obviously loses that fight but roko martin i'd say above average but not a top 10 to top 15 type of guy so that type of loss is not the greatest on your record and then nicholas tosa who as well another ufc debutant so we've been seeing him going out there and, and beating the guys that he's supposed to beat as a heavy favorite like against sekulich minus 680 against uh, Stolzia minus 420 he's going out there and doing what he's supposed to do now is he going to be able to do that against a vet like David Zavada as a minus 250 favorite I don't think he deserves to be a minus 250 but I still think he goes out there and gets his hand raised so I'll go with Ramazan Amiv to win this fight with uh, you know a bit of a striking clinic here landing the better shots on Zavada and then taking over even later in this fight with his uh, very efficient style so once again I'll go with Ramazan Amiv to win this fight via decision Justin Taffa versus Carlos Philippe. We got plus 170 on Justin Taffa and minus 200 on boy Carlos Philippe. Let's start off with Carlos Philippe, who's coming off a victory over Jorgen De Castro in a fight that he was coming in as a plus 190 underdog. That was a lot. That was a fight that a lot of people maybe they thought that uh, you know Jorgen didn't really show his best uh, against Greg Hardy and thought he would be able to come back against uh, Philippe here and actually showcase what he was made of and actually showcase what he showed in his fight against Justin Taffa uh, and and showing off that explosive power however Carlos Philippe had different uh, plans for that fight and he showed a great game plan you know uh, great cardio great pace great, great pressure never really let uh, Justin Taff off the hook just always stayed in his face landing beautiful shots straight down the middle didn't really discriminate with the head or the body either had some good leg kicks mixed in there as well too um and I thought he showed uh you know what he what uh, a glimpse of what his full potential could look like now my question is what his chin and where his durability is at because I feel like that's the only way that he loses this fight if Justin Taffa lands a beautiful punch uh, right on the button, will Philippe go out? Will, uh, you know, from what I've seen, Philippe does a really good job of rolling what punches. He land he ate a lot of shots from Jorgen DeCastro, who hits very, very hard. Um, and we didn't see him really flinch, didn't get dropped, knocked down, or anything like that. The only real success, and I say success with some quotes here, um, or at least with an asterisk, is uh, the third round of Jorgen DeCastro, where he just 
pushed up uh, Carlos Felipe up against the cage. Unfortunately for uh, for De Castro in that fight, he had a very impatient coach and or a referee in Kevin Sataki who just wanted to see action. So you know, ten or fifteen seconds into these clinch positions, you're seeing Sataki kind of just push them apart, and then as soon as the, he resumes the fight, uh, De Castro did the exact same thing, bull rushed fully pretty much up against the cage. Uh, you know, not without hitting a bunch of shots though, uh, and, and was just looking to kind of slow the fight down. Philippe's pace and pressure was definitely getting to him and kind of breaking him, hence why I feel like he went that route of just pushing Philippe up against the cage and kind of slowing down the fight. Philippe, however, did a really good job on the defensive side in terms of landing good shots uh, while defending, um, not really giving up any takedowns or anything like that. Um, you know, landing big, big shots, uh, and all the judges actually scored that third round for Philippe, even though the majority of it was spent with his back against the cage. I'm glad that the judges and referees are seeing it that way, as it's usually the guy that's dishing out the damage that should be getting those scorecards, rather than the guy who's just trying to take control. If you guys remember, the criteria with judging is damage should be first then comes cage control so uh, i'm glad that the the judges were on point they were tested that night it was almost like a trick question type of round for them and luckily for them they actually came out on the proper side and we did see philippe get the uh, decision victory in that fight the fight before that against sergey spivak we saw spivak take a very uh, all-around approach and beating Philippe, you know, uh, clinching him up against the cage, landing some good damage there, and then in that third round, getting him down and, uh, you know, really uh, establishing that top position, landing some good shots from on top and winning that fight, at least in my book, 29-28, with Philippe taking the second round, I believe it was. So uh, I'm seeing an improving game from Carlos Philippe, who will be 26 by the time that this fight happens, and I feel like he has a better overall game and full package compared to what we've seen from Justin Taffa. Now, Taf on the other end, we're talking about a guy who's coming off uh, a KO victory, beautiful KO victory over Juan Adams. Uh, and then before that, he was the one that got put up by Jorgen de Castro. Um, the, the one thing that Tafa has gotten away with is his power. Like he shows deficiencies in certain parts of his games or of his game, but I will give him uh, some credit for actually going for takedowns. Not something we really see from a guy who's mainly known to be a heavy handed puncher. Uh, he has some decent takedowns, some decent trips, uh, but he does show some green and, and vulnerability on the ground. Even when he's on the ground, there are instances where he gets easily reversed and guys are doing some good, good work from on top on him. Um, his his special weapon if you want to have like a like like wrestlers have signature moves i'd say justin taffa's signature move is his uppercut he's put out a couple guys with it he generates a lot of power with it uh but i find it hard to believe that he'll be able to land cleanly on carlos philippe who shows very good head movement and good uh, defensive striking we've never really seen him in trouble when it comes to the striking realm um, or at least in terms of getting hurt and dropped. And I truly think that's Tafa's really only way to win this fight. Uh, I think Philippe will have him out-volumed pretty much in every single round that Carlos Philippe has fought up until this point. He's landed at least 20 strikes, um, except with uh, the third round of his fight against Sergei Spivak, where we saw Spivak actually get him to the ground and really nullify the offense that was coming back his way. So I think uh, Tafa is going to be outgunned here. He doesn't mind being pushed back, which kind of sucks, uh, and is not to your advantage when you're going up against a guy like Carlos who likes to push the pace forward likes to get in your face throw the punt, uh, throw the jab out there uh, really work the body as well too and uh, he, yeah he just loves coming forward and landing shots and uh, Tafa is, is more of the guy that seems to be looking for that knockout punch um, 
yeah, I'm not the most impressed with Tafa. I just uh, I, I feel like he he relies on his power too much, and it's worked out for him. Other than the Jorgen de Castro fight, where he just showed poor fight IQ in terms of just lunging forward, it looked like he was holding out his left arm to try to block anything that was coming from de Castro. But as soon as he put his hand down and went for his own punch, that's when de Castro decided to throw his counter and absolutely stiff Justin Tafa in that fight. So that was very unfortunate for uh, for uh, Tafa to have to go through and suffer his first loss. Another thing about Tafa's record that I found very intriguing, of the five victories that he's gotten, one of them being his amateur fight, none of his opponents has fought again other than one, uh, I believe it was uh, Dave Taumopau, absolutely butchering that name, but that's the, the fight before uh, he made it to the UFC. He finished that guy in the second round, um, but that guy fought one more time and lost again. So he ended up with his record at 3-3. Three and three. Uh, Very green is Justin Taffa still. Probably didn't have the most uh, competition uh, down under there to really test his skill and test his might before coming over to the UFC. And that might be to his detriment because he's really having to you know, find his potential and find his true self within the UFC against some of these sharks. And I feel like Carlos Felipe, uh, from a stylistic standpoint, is a very difficult matchup. You're talking about a guy who will definitely out-volume Justin Taffa here uh, and probably have a better overall game. Now, my concern with on the Philippe side is uh, he... He might feel like uh, like he wants to stroke his ego a little bit, and he might go punch for punch for Justin Taffa. However, I still feel like the the head movement that we've seen from Philippe, he keeps it quite sharp, and and he's pretty good with staying out of the way of these big shots and rolling with big shots as well too. You got to think that he's been trained to avoid that uppercut, as Justin Taffa has put out many many people with that single strike. So. Uh, hopefully he he minds his p's and q's in that aspect. Another thing that I'm kind of worried about with backing Philippe is um, his his willingness to almost just be pushed up against the cage with not much urgency to get off of it. And I've seen Tafa actually be successful with kind of holding guys up against the cage, not as successful as prior opponents, like as maybe Sergei Spivak was. But uh, I think that Justin Tafa could uh, win a couple minutes here and there if he's able to push up Philippe and if we don't see much urgency from Philippe to get out of those situations. So that's where my concern lies with Philippe. However, if this does reach the judges' scorecards, I heavily favor Philippe here. Um, we still need to get a better gauge on what Justin Taffa's cardio looks like as well too so I'm not really sure what we'll see from him later in the second round or later in the third round as we've never really seen him in that part uh, of a fight yet the longest his fights have gone I think is uh, midway through the second round I just want to confirm this on uh, on my topology yet uh, it was his first ever fight uh, that went uh, three and a half minutes into the second round and that was uh, a fight that was grapple heavy as well too. His opponent had success with uh, you know reversing um, uh, Tafa a couple times, but the ultimate uh, or the, the 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 final sequence that led to the finish of his opponent was uh, probably one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. So the guy has full mount on Justin Tafa and kind of sits his butt on his chest, not in the way that a normal full mount would be, but he actually like props his leg up and is kind of just sitting on him like he's squatting on top of him that's not the position that you want to have uh because it really allows the opponent to to buck and, and shrimp and get uh you know get out of those positions and that's exactly what justin taffa did that night because he reversed the position got full mount himself and then started raining down shots on his opponent and that's how he got him out of there so um the later this fight goes, I feel like I got to uh, lean the Carlos Philippe side, but that's only because we've seen him go to a decision two times in a row now, and we've seen his cardio hold up. 
Whereas Justin Taffer, we just haven't seen that yet. But given the pace, pressure, and and style of Philippe, I gotta assume that he's gonna be the one that's fresher later in this fight. And uh, I wouldn't be mad at anybody that takes a shot at the over one and a half here too, because I feel like uh, Philippe will be hella durable. Um, he doesn't seem like the most keen on getting guys out of there. Um, but then again, Justin Taffer's durability is definitely questionable, especially after uh, getting knocked out as viciously, viciously as he did to Jorgen Castro back in October of 2019. I'm not saying that Philippe is a, as big of a puncher as Jorgen de Castro, but you got to consider what Tafa's durability is like. We've seen him rocked in earlier fights in his career too, so that's something to to keep an eye on. However, I still like Philippe to win this fight. Um, minus 200 is not too bad of a line. Um, yeah, I, I, I do like Philippe here. That power of Tafa does scare me, but from what I've seen from Philippe, it seems like he has a beard on him. It seems like he rolls with punches very well, um, and he, he never really shows any signs of uh, you know getting stunned or rocked or anything like that as of yet. Uh, I feel like Tafa is the hardest puncher that he's fought up until this point. Jorgen de Castro is obviously a very hard puncher himself too, but I feel like we'll see uh, Philippe actually endure whatever Tafa throws at him, and we'll see a much more complete game from Tafa, or sorry, from Philippe, as well as, you know, uh, the pace, pressure, and, and volume, too. The volume is the main thing here, as I feel like it's just going to keep Tafa super uncomfortable, kind of just telegraphing all of his shots and his punches, and that's where I think Philippe will be able to take advantage. So I'm going to take uh, Philippe to win this fight, probably either late third-round finish uh, or decision. I'll go with decision just to be on the safe side, uh, but I do like Tafa, or sorry, I do like Philippe to win this fight. Tom Breeze versus Omari Akhmedov. We got minus 150 on Tom Breeze and plus 130 on the Russian Omari Akhmedov. So let's start off with Akhmedov, who's coming off a loss to uh, Chris Weidman last time around where he lost that fight via decision. But before then, he was putting together a pretty solid streak where he won was it uh five street fights in a row uh actually undefeated in his last six we have a draw there with marvin vittori way back at ufc 219 in uh 2017 but before that the only time he had suffered a defeat uh or not only but one of the times they had suffered defeat was elizio zalesquito santos back in 2016 now uh, we know what Akhmedov's style is. You know, I mean, he likes to uh, move forward. Uh, he has a solid, uh, you know, some decent power in his hands. Throws a lot of winging hooks, a lot of wide winging hooks. Not really the most technical striker out there. Uh, has some decent takedowns as well too, and does a decent job of holding top uh, top pressure when his opponents aren't really doing the best in terms of trying to get out of those bad positions. Um, you know. It's funny because he kind of reminds me of a guy like you all Romero in the sense that a lot of people always want to shit on his his cardio and his gas tank and saying oh he's always huffing and puffing in that third round and he's always live to get finished in that third round however he's still always winning these decisions he's always going out there and surviving the third rounds or even winning the third rounds in some of his fights and uh, so he's kind of like proving people wrong even though people are assuming these certain things about him like he did lose in the third round uh, to Sergio Moraes and Elizio Zalesco dos Santos uh, back in 2015 and 2016 respectively however since then he hasn't lost a fight via finish or even finished a fight uh, in that amount of time either now in terms of talking about finishing fights the last time he did finish a fight was against Brian Ebersol but that was a little bit of a interesting one because that was an, a knee injury that they eventually stopped at the end of that first round so if you want to talk about legitimate last finish for Akhmadi or God I'm absolutely butchering his name Omari Akhmadov the last time we saw him actually finish a fight and not due to an injury was against Tiago Perpetuo uh, way back at UFC Fight Night 32 which was in November of 2013 
So we're talking over seven years ago, or just over seven years ago with a couple months as well too, since we saw him get a finish. Um, with that said, like, like again, he doesn't have the most uh, impact or power when it's when we're we're talking about his ground and pound and and when he's holding top control over these guys. Uh, but he's still able to go out there and grind these guys out, push them up against the cage, and get the takedowns that he needs to, and just outposition these guys, which is why he was able to go on that that six fight unbeaten streak before running into Chris Weidman, which was a very very close fight itself too. Um, you know, a lot of both of those guys kind of relying on the position more than damage in those fights, and Chris Weidman was able to outposition him for the majority of that fight now this is a completely different stylistic matchup that uh that omari has fought in a long time now going up against a guy like tom breeze you're talking about as somebody who's very very slick on the feet amazing boxing very crisp very technical a big dude too that's something that a lot of people are going to have to worry about here if you are backing omari akhmedov we got six foot for omari with a 73 inch reach whereas tom breeze is coming in with a six three uh six foot three um uh, advantage uh, in terms of the height not advantage sorry he is six foot three coming into this with a 73 and a half inch reach but they're definitely going to look a lot uh you know different in terms of different weight classes once they step into the cage as well too now tom breeze is a guy that i've been very high on for a long time but it seems like his issue is that mental game he's not he's not always able to go out there and and do the best that he can because it seems like he mentally collapses and he mentally breaks there was a long lull in the period of time where he wasn't really even going out there and and getting fights just because he just mentally couldn't do it he's always had these anxiety attacks and these uh, these panic attacks and i hope now that he's had you know two straight fights uh you know within the calendar year that hopefully he's been able to to fix that and remedy that and is able to actually make the walk like i believe one of his fights I can't remember exactly which one, but uh, it might have been the Roman Kopolov fight. Uh, it might have been even earlier than that, maybe against Ian Heinisch, uh, uh, Carlos Fajera, or even Alessio Di Crico. All of those fights he pulled out of, but one of those, it was literally like the day of that he eventually pulled out of the fight due to uh, you know mental whatever it was. So if he's able to fix that, and if he's able to really get that kind of solved, I feel like he could be a really big problem for a lot of guys in the game. You know, his loss to Brandon Allen was a very, very weird one. Um, he, he initiated the grappling. He, he tried getting the fight to the ground with a beautiful trip. However, uh, Brandon Allen did a really good job in terms of changing the momentum of the direction of that takedown uh and eventually ended up on top of tom breeze you kind of see the 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 failed look in tom breeze's eyes as soon as he ends up on his back um still had a hook in in a weird position given how long and lengthy his body is however brendan allen was able to do a good job in terms of securing that top position now they eventually kept working on the ground and and got put up against the cage and Tom Breeze was just stuck in this weird position where uh, Brendan Allen was just kind of on top of him, almost stacking him uh, and just raining down shots, raining down elbows. And uh, Tom Breeze was in a very compromised position that was very, very tough to get out of. Now, if he was more so in the open cage, maybe he would have been able to get out and, and buck and shrimp and explode out of that situation. However, being up against the cage, pinned up the way he was, it was very, very tough for him to defend against the big ground and pound that was coming from Brendan Allen. So that was an unfortunate loss. However, he comes back, uh, I believe, yeah, it was eight months afterwards, comes in against uh, a, new UFC, a new UFC opponent in KB Buller where he was able to show off his beautiful um, 
you know, striking his 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 bread and butter, his hands, his kicks, and uh, you know it wasn't the longest fight. It only lasted a minute and forty two seconds. Uh, after he landed a beautiful power jab down the middle, that abs- that landed just beautifully on the button, like. I know a lot of people are going to give my guy KB Buller some shit for dropping the weight that he did, but like, just go back and watch that jab. It was just perfectly uh, executed. Uh, he got the brunt of that strike right on the center of the face, like just right on the nose. Like if you get re- hit really hard on the nose, more guy, more often than not, guys are going to collapse and fall to the ground. And and eventually, Tom Breeze just went ape shit with the ground and pound, and eventually got the stoppage there. So I'm sure mentally that was probably a very big thing for him to to get that and hopefully he's able to parlay that into a, a solid performance here against Omari Akhmedov because on the feed I think he absolutely blows Akhmedov out of the water now I, I've heard certain takes out there that they think that uh, uh, you know the, the under two and a half is a solid spot it did uh, you know it, it did intrigue me at first however just looking at the way that uh, omari deals with guys on the ground it doesn't seem to me that it will be something that will break tom breeze and i think you're gonna have to break tom breeze to to finish him and i think that's what's uh you know given the or, or sorry adding the the incentive that he was pinned up against the cage against brandon allen and the the tenacity that brandon allen was bringing into that cage as well too with that ground and pound uh I think it's going to be tough to to finish a guy like uh, Tom Breeze, um, especially for a guy like Omari, who, again, not the the biggest power puncher on the ground, not the biggest ground and pounder either. So I think that Tom Breeze will be able to deal with that. The longer this fight stays on the feet, the worse it is for Omari Akhmedov. And the liver, I think, Tom Breeze is in terms of finishing this fight. I think he could absolutely pick him apart on the feet. He's got to maintain his distance. He's got to make sure that he circles out, keeps his back off the cage. I believe, yeah, they are at Fight Island, so they're going to have the bigger cage. I'm not a huge proponent of the you know, the, the smaller cage being worse for certain guys. Um, I, I do think it is a bit of a factor, but not like a huge one where it's just like, okay, just because they're in the small cage, we're definitely getting a finish. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that type of guy but i do think that uh, this slightly bigger cage does favor tom breeze in terms of being able to have a little bit more room to to pivot off of the the, the center line and and uh you know when his back is being pushed up against the cage he has a, or closer to the cage and, and that warning track he's able to pivot and get out of the way of those uh, of those strikes and that clinch situation of omari who needs to get his hands on a, on breeze to get this victory i think he needs to drag this fight to the ground spent some time on top and tom breeze has been putting in work with his jiu-jitsu too he's had a couple of grappling competitions and grappling fights uh although he did you know didn't really show the greatest grappling against brendan allen allen is a, a high level jiu-jitsu guy in my opinion as well too but uh I, I think we could see you know even if this fight does end up on the ground i think we could see some good stuff from breeze off of off of his back so i'm not too worried about breeze there either my only qualm and my only issue with breeze is his mental state i just i can't we we can't trust it yet at least in my eyes i can't trust it yet skill for skill he should absolutely blow omar yakmanov out of the water like he should be a minus 250 favorite if he could mentally keep it together now i need to see him go out there and show us fight after fight after fight maybe three or four fights in a row where we see him not break not mentally take a, a break or anything like that or or fold other under any type of pressure that's when i'll start to be a little bit more confident in tom breeze but if you're telling me skill for skill right now i'm gonna have to go with tom i don't see any value on omari at that at that plus money i feel like tom breeze has this fight wrapped up uh he needs to keep it on the feet even if it does get on the ground i'm interested to see how he's able to use his frame and the jujitsu that he's been been able to to accrue the training that he's been able to accrue over the last uh, little while 
and how effective he can be with it. But his best work will definitely be done on the feet. One line that I was actually intrigued to look at was Tom Breeze via KO, as I think that's a very live option if it, if it does remain on the feet. Tom Breeze via KO is plus 230. I think that's a solid spot. That's a good prop. You might hear me trip about that on the Propping You Up stream that I do with Cody later this week. But uh, yeah, I like Tom Breeze to win this fight. He just needs to string together a couple of victories, get that confidence at, at its peak, and then I'm going to go out. Then I'd be willing to, you know, part ways with my money and let him go out there and, and fight for my money. So uh, I'll go with Tom Breeze. Much better striking. Uh, the, the frame is going to be very, very tough for Omari to deal with as well, in my opinion. Uh, but and, and the cardio, I think, kind of washes itself out. I still think that Breeze will have the slight advantage in that third round. Uh, so maybe Breeze third round is a possibility. But uh, it's been a long time since we've seen Omari finished in the cage. Uh, close to five years now. So who knows? Maybe Breeze is that guy. Uh, it, it absolutely is a possibility. So once again, I'll go with Tom Breeze to win this fight via KO. Uh, but am I most confident in playing him at minus 150? Probably not. Uh, but I do like him to win this fight via KO, probably first or second round. Wu Yanan versus Jocelyn Edwards. We got minus 165 on Wu Yanan and plus 145 on the UFC newcomer, Jocelyn Edwards. Let's start off with Wu Yanan, who's coming off a decision loss to Mizuki anyway in a very, very close fight which you could arguably give to her as well too. She had great output with her striking. She threw over 200 strikes, landed over 100 of them as well too. Um, and she was doing some good work on the feet. Unfortunately for her, Mizuki anyway really implemented her grappling, really close the distance, worked good in the clinch, got a couple takedowns, and uh, did some good work there. But it was a very close fight. You could absolutely score it for Wu Yunnan as well. I tried even going back to the MMA decisions page and seeing if you know more fans saw it my way as well too. However, there were only about 30 or 32 scorecards, and the majority of them were in Mizuki anyway's favor. So uh, maybe I didn't, maybe or I just did not want to read into that fight as much as I, I was thinking. But uh, you know, I think we're seeing a, a progression in the the confidence of Wu Yunnan compared to the first time we saw her in the UFC, where she just got completely outmuscled and manhandled or woman handled, I should say, by Gina Mazzani. Um, and that was the best performance that we've seen from Gina in the UFC as well. So, um, yeah, that, that was a tough fight for Wu. She just could not get anything going. Mazzini did a really good job of pinning her up against the cage and just beating her up in that style, that dirty boxing, dirty clinch style. She she had a lot of success there, and Wu just did not know what the hell she could do in that aspect. And then in the next fight, she goes out there and submits Lauren Mueller with a beautiful armbar. Uh, a weird one, too, because you didn't really see her torque on it much. It seemed like Lauren Mueller knew right away that it was in too deep. She was not going to be able to get out, and she kind of just tapped her. So, you know, good on Wu for being able to, to to pull off that type of submission and then in the next fight against the Inoue obviously just couldn't really get her game going in terms of being dominant enough with her striking but I am very impressed with the volume and the output that we saw too great combinations from Wu Yunnan as well I think that we're seeing a progression in her game a progression in her confidence which I think is going to pay dividends for her in the UFC now, Wu's still young. I believe she's 24 or 25 years old. And uh, to get this type of experience this early in your career is very, very helpful. Now, uh, also, one more thing I want to point out about Wu is actually I find it very weird that we have Marlon Sandro in, his cor in her corner. For the diehard MMA fans out there, you guys will know Marlon Sandro from his time in Bellator. Uh, you know, very high-level jiu-jitsu, uh, I believe, yeah, high-level jiu-jitsu artist, as well as uh, I believe he was a champion in Bellator as well, too. And to see them kind of link up and work together is just 
just weird. I, I don't know. Like, uh, I don't mean it in like a, you know, you shouldn't see those two types of people together, but it not, not often do you see a Brazilian and a Chinese uh, person kind of working together, especially in the mixed martial arts world. So, uh, you know, good job on Wu Yunnan. She actually received her blue belt after she tapped out Lauren Mueller in their fight too. So they are having a, a solid working relationship where they're seeing the progression of Wu Yunnan with her jujitsu as well too. Now going on to the Jocelyn Edwards side where, you know, she's coming in on short notice, uh, she has, um, she's stepping in for Betch Kohea, who just recently pulled out due to having to take a surgery, I, I forgot exactly what she had to pull out for, but uh, I'm liking what we're seeing from Jocelyn, she's 25 years old, um, she's 9-2, and two. her only or her most recent loss was to Sarah Alpar, who is in the UFC as well too. Most people will remember Sarah Alpar for for being the girl that took so much damage from uh, Jessica Rose Clark. Potentially should have gotten finished in that uh, in that fight. Um, yeah, very very tough fight for Sarah Alpar that time around. But for this Jocelyn Jones, Jocelyn's Edwards fight. Uh, you know, that was a split decision win for Sarah Alpar, where she just took her grappling, like she just closed the distance time and time again, dragged this fight to the ground. Uh, but Jocelyn Edwards did a really good job of getting back to her feet over and over again, landing good shots. Even the guys that were scoring at Cade's side, I believe it's Pat Militich, he gave the first two rounds to Jocelyn Edwards, and she probably should have won that fight. You know, she was the one dishing out the damage, whereas Sarah Alpar was the one kind of just controlling the fight uh, with her clinch and, and pushing her up against the cage. But damage should score more in fights, and that's actually in the criteria, damage then cage control. So Justin Edwards absolutely has an argument that she should have won that fight, and she should be on an insane win streak at this point in time. Like the last time, uh, the time she lost a fight before that was her second ever fight, uh, second ever pro fight. And she actually came back and avenged that loss too by winning via armbar uh, a couple fights later against the same woman. So um, yeah, she she's avenged her uh, early loss. She should have won that fight against Sarah Alpar. Had a really good case as to why she should have won that fight. Uh, and and then most recently she beats a girl named Pamela Gonzalez. This was uh, post COVID era, so uh, July of this past year. And she just dusts her in twenty six seconds. Like the the poor woman, poor Pamela Gonzalez, getting absolutely beat on up against the cage just did not seem like she deserved to be in there didn't even want to be in there um yeah edwards went to work and just absolutely pieced her up and did some solid solid work uh before the sarah alpar fight actually uh jocelyn edwards fought the wife of tim means uh barbara gonzalez means uh and she ended up beating her via armbar in the second round uh but she showed a lot of good things in that fight uh jocelyn that is uh great striking did a really good job in terms of maintaining her distance, landing good kicks, landing good punches, landing good teeps down the middle as well too. Um, I, I like what we see from her. I like her ability to maintain and manage the distance the way that she did. I'm not expecting to see a grapple-heavy game plan from Wu Yanan here, kind of similar to Sarah Alpar. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think this is mainly going to be a striking battle, and I think we're going to see Wu kind of throwing out wind a little bit more than we're going to see Jocelyn actually landing. I think we'll definitely see uh, Jocelyn get the better strikes off, uh, probably more combinations too. Uh, she has solid jiu-jitsu as well too. I think Wu is still progressing in that aspect, even though she has a victory over Lauren Mueller via submission. Uh, I still think that Jocelyn might be a little bit ahead of her uh, just due to how aggressive and offensive she seems off of her back too. Like the, the armbar that she pulled off against Brenda Gonzalez was like as soon as she got, fell to her back or, or got to 
taken down. Um, she was very offensive right away. She had a high guard right off the bat, really getting her legs up there and just looking for that opportunity to kind of swing her hips around and get that armbar going. And she did exactly that. So uh, so solid work there. Very impressed with what we're seeing from Jocelyn. I think she could absolutely be an issue here. And at plus 145, I think that's a solid spot for her too. Um, the, the thing that kind of worries me though is if this fight does stay main, mainly on the feet, the, the possible volume advantage that Wu might have could sway the judges a little bit. I still believe that Edwards will be a little bit more effective on the feet, landing the better shots, landing the better kicks, um, but just continuously seeing Wu go out there and, and putting combinations together, even if they miss, we already know that the judges sometimes kind of just score that even if it doesn't end up being that effective. So that's where my issue is with uh, actually betting this fight. I do think that Edwards gets the better of it. Um, I've been stung in the past a lot with betting on newcomers, uh, so that might be keeping me away from actually betting on Edwards here. But uh, at plus 145, it's a very, very sexy proposition in terms of uh, what we have with the variables here with Abu and with Jocelyn Jones or Jocelyn Edwards. I always want to say Jocelyn Jones because there used to be a fighter in the UFC named Jocelyn Jones Lieberger. So it just it just rolls off the tongue a little bit easier just saying Jocelyn Jones. So um literally the only person I know named Jocelyn was Jocelyn Jones. Now we got Jocelyn Edwards as well too. But uh yeah I, I like um I like Edwards to win this fight. I think she wins via decision. Um, goes out there, shows off a great striking game plan. Um, you know, uses her elbows, uses her kicks, uses her punches, uses that distance as well too. I, that's where I think it's going to be very, very important for her to manage that distance uh, and get the better shots off. And I think she'll be able to do that. So once again, I'll go with Jocelyn Edwards to win this fight via decision. Uh, and I think she could be a very, very solid prospect uh, in this weight class. And uh, I'm glad that she's made it to the UFC. Even though she lost to Sarah Alba, part two fights ago again that was a little bit of a red flag for me because i don't really think that highly of sarah alpar but once you actually watch the fight and see how it went down you could absolutely make a, a case for uh jocelyn edwards to win to have won that fight one judge actually did give it to her pat militich actually gave it to her as well too however two other judges scored the cage control and the you know the the wrestling of um, Alpar more than they did the striking and the damage of Edwards so uh, I will go with Edwards uh, yeah I, I think she wins this fight I'll take her to win this fight via decision Nasardine Imovov versus Phil Hawes we got minus 160 on Phil Hawes and plus 140 on Imovov let's start off with the Imovov side of things he's coming off a victory over Jordan Williams last time around where he came in as a minus 140 underdog and that's a fight that I remember distinctly due to the fact that I don't remember much about uh, Imovov or at least I wasn't able to actually uh, gather enough information regarding Imovov due to the uh, lack of um, uh, footage that was available of him before this Jordan Williams fight. Luckily, we were able to go out there and get 15 hard minutes of Imovov tape uh, against Jordan Williams and uh, still feel like there, there's a little bit more that we need to find out about this guy to see how good he actually is. He's 9-2, same record as Phil Hawes. He's 24 years old, so he still has some time to grow. Uh, and he has a solid frame at 6-3 with a 75.5-inch reach. Um, I think he could be a very interesting prospect in this division uh, if he can truly round out his tools. Now, he's training over there at the MMA factory in France. I believe his coach's name is uh, something Ferdinand. I can't remember his first name, uh, or that actually might be his first name. But uh, he is famous for training most of those French fighters 
Taylor Lapalus, Czech Congo. I think he started with Francis Ngannou before Ngannou decided to come over to the States. Uh, and then I also believe he's trained with uh, Cyril Gan as well too. But uh, Imovov is a completely different guy compared to those last couple names that I've thrown out there. His nickname is a Russian sniper, which is weird given that this guy comes from a French, uh, French background. Um, regardless, you, you kind of see it in his fights because he, he stands kind of tall, uh, uses his range very well, and his jab right down the middle is a very, very sharp uh, strike of his. Uh, he does have good chokes as well, too. He showcased a couple of them against Jordan Williams, but wasn't really able to get the finish there. However, it could definitely come into play in this fight against Phil Hawes, who has shown to slow down later in fights. Now, we haven't really seen Phil Hawes push later in fights as of late uh, with him having... Um, you know, finished a couple of his last uh, last opponents. Um, you know, obviously uh, the the Bestaya fight and the Jacob Malcolm fight, both both fights. Uh, well, the the Bestaya fight, obviously in the contender series, and the Malcolm fight back at UFC two fifty four, I believe it was. Um, we saw him go out there and get the job done pretty quickly against Bestaev. It was a minute and ten seconds against Malkun. It was thirty seconds, and then um, the the only footage. So there wasn't footage available for the Fraga fight or the Schober fight, but the Michael Wilcox fight. That's a fight where we saw go the full five minutes, and it looked like a headbutt that actually opened up that cut of uh, Wilcox. However, they ruled it uh, a legal strike. It was a right hand that came over the top as well, right before that inverted headbutt. Uh, but regardless, Phil Hall's come out comes out with the victory he's only been to the second round let's see he's been to the second round four times in 13 fights or sorry in 11 fights uh he won his first two uh, which were his first two fights of his career of his professional career and then the next two fights which were his fifth and sixth fights uh, fifth and sixth pro fights both of them went into the second round and he got finished in both of them now i feel like this guy is a one and done guy in terms of uh you know having enough gas tank in that first round uh to go out there and land big shots and possibly get a takedown and do some good ground and pound however that second round is where the the drop-off starts to begin the power doesn't come as as heavy as it does the, the the speed isn't there as much as it is in that first round and that's where the the concerns are now we haven't seen him in that second round since uh 2017 so it's been a while and he's jumped around camps as well too his last loss was against julian marquez on the contender series and at that time he was uh you know the the best kept secret per se of um uh, of jackson wink you know worked a lot with john jones that was one of the main things especially like when they tried getting him into the ultimate fighter i believe he lost to andrew sanchez i could be off on that uh but he didn't even make it into the house then he goes on to the contender series for the first time gets knocked out in the second round by julian marquez and then the next time he comes around finally and gets that victory over Bestayev. not before putting together three straight victories uh after beating or after losing to julian marquez then comes into the the contender series gets that knockout gets the ticket to the ufc and gets a quick 30 second knockout but th there's not so much that you can take from these types of fighters like um punahale soriano uh, outside of that one decision victory that he had against uh jamie pickett there wasn't much to really go off of like the guys going out there and just starching these guys and that's not really what you want to be betting on because you're just always betting on these guys to go out there and get the finish the perfect example that i'd like to bring up uh at least most recently that's come up is the lewis kosi fight where he's not able to get that first round finish and then sasha palatnikov goes out there and finishes him in the third round um i don't know if phil Haas has truly made those improvements in the cardio realm like we we, we just haven't seen it so you can't say yes he's gonna have better cardio i mean we need to go see him go out there and do that 
I like the approach that he took in the Bestia fight with implementing uh, that lead leg kick, that calf kick specifically, to really get Bestia thinking about that, and then kind of flinching on that, and then coming over with the big overhand, which was eventually the downfall of Bestia in that fight. Um, another thing about Filahaz is he seems to have changed gyms quite often. So, like I said, he started off uh, mo most recent, or he started off, or at least he's known for being the the best kept secret at Jackson Wink. Uh, then, after his Julian Marquez fight, he went over to Bellator, and you saw Tiger Shulman in his corner. So he moved over there to, I believe, it's the New York and New Jersey region that the Shulman brothers are at, and uh, he, he had a couple fights with them, I believe. I, again, I wasn't able to track down the tape on his Brave CF fights or his uh, yeah his Brave CF fights, so I wasn't able to see who's in the corner there. But then you see him go uh, against uh, Bestaev in the Contender Series. Uh, you know, this was just in September of this year, and he has uh, Sanford MMA guys in his corner. Now you're seeing, um, you know, uh, on his Instagram as well. He he's mainly training over there at Sanford MMA. But roughly about three weeks ago, he actually went over to uh, to Switzerland to train with Volkan Uzdemir with his gym over there. So I think he just wanted to like get on to that side of the world, get on kind of, you know, a similar uh, time zone and clock uh, by being over there in Europe closer to Abu Dhabi rather than being down in Florida. Uh, and he still has some of his guys over there that he mainly trains with at Sanford, mainly Volkan Uzma being one of the guys that I was able to spot. Uh, I'm certain, obviously, his Sanford uh, MMA coaches are going to be coming over closer to the time of the fight. Uh, but he's been spending, like I said, the last three weeks. Uh, right now, it's January 3rd. So we're talking about another about two weeks before the fight's actually supposed to happen. So all in all, he's going to be have he's going to have been over there for a solid five weeks, which I think is very beneficial for him to not have to deal with the jet lag and you know crossing the pond uh, during a weight cut and and you know all the nerves that he has to deal with going into to, to the fight uh, week and all that type of stuff. So I think it, he's he's stacking the chips in his favor, and this is the great this is a great way to do it. Now. Uh, I've always talked about uh, Phil Haas being a fadeable fighter because I think he truly is a round one or bust kind of guy. And I kind of overextended myself by taking the heavy underdog odds on Jacob Malkuna last time and I paid for it almost immediately. Like the guy got put out within 30 seconds. I don't know if Imovov is that guy. Uh, I, I wanted to find a reason to, buy, uh, to bet Imamov here, especially as a, as a dog, a plus 140 dog, but I feel like I need higher or better odds to actually uh, you know stretch out and actually make that bet. Um, Phil Haas on the other end I still don't feel comfortable enough betting him at that minus 160 range the spot that you do want to hit if you are liking Phil Haas is him to win inside the distance at plus 105 or even him to win by KO which I believe is around that plus 125 plus 130 range I think that's the spot that you want to hit I just don't see him winning a decision again the, the cardio issues are too much of a, a of a flaw for me to overlook and that's not the type of guy that I want to have my money on especially if I'm not uh, that confident in him being able to you know fight in the 6th to 15th minute mark if it ends up going there uh so i do like haas here um i couldn't uh, you know side with imovov after running the tape he is hittable um you know I, I think that lead calf kick that we saw phil haas implement in his best eye fight that could come in uh into come in handy here against um uh, against Imovov as I believe that Imovov will have a three inch height advantage however Phil Haas does have the reach advantage here however you can still see guys taking advantage of the height um, discrepancy and using that as a defensive mechanism in terms of kind of leaning back and getting out of the way of shots 
that's why I think Phil Hawes has, has kind of chosen the route of just chewing up that lead leg, letting his opponent kind of just focus on that first and then bring the fight back up to, to the head and, and really start, uh, you know, landing the damage there and hopefully getting these guys out in that first round. So I'll go with Phil Hawes to win this fight via first round of KO. Not the most confident in it, as I believe if this does see the second round, it could get iffy. So maybe a good live betting opportunity as well because Phil Hawes will more than likely win that first round. Um Another angle that I just want to quickly throw out there is um, with with Imovov, that choke that I was talking about, if Phil Hawes starts sucking win in that sixth uh, or that second round and that third round and Imovov tries to pull off that type of choke uh, like he tried against Jordan Williams and as he's been successful with in his past uh, fights, uh, I think it could get very hairy for Phil Hawes as I don't think he'll have as much explosion and ability to get out of those bad positions that Jordan Williams was in. And Jordan Williams was sucking win himself too and I feel like Phil Hawes might have a worse gas tank than that again if he hasn't improved it and i'm just basing it off of what i've seen up until this point and that's all we have to work with so uh but i still think that we won't end up seeing that second round i think phil hawes is the right side here in terms of uh you know him getting that first round ko and that's the side that i'm going to be going with again not sure if i'll actually make an official bet on it but in terms of of a prediction i'll go with phil hawes to win this fight via first round ko Punahale Soriano versus Dushko Todorovic. We got minus 160 on uh, Dushko and plus 140 on Punahale. And let's start off with Punahale, who a lot of people seem to not like as much anymore for some reason. Both fighters are undefeated. Uh, Punahale is obviously coming off a victory over Oscar Piyahota, uh back in uh, actually back at UFC 245. So it's been over a year since we've seen Punahale in the cage. Um, and going into taping this fight, I thought that I was like this was a prime spot to go out there and fade Dushko. Or sorry, to go out there and fade Punahale. Um, you know, just kind of scrolling to through Twitter and and seeing most people's uh, opinions on it, I was kind of like, okay, everybody seems to be pretty one sided on on Dushko here. And we've slowly started to see the money start to come back on Punahale. It did open up, I believe, near a pick'em, and we've seen a lot of money coming in on Dushko. But uh, the money started to come back on Soriano at this point in time. And uh, after running the tape, I kind of understand why. You know, so let's like I said, let's start off with Punahale. Uh, a contender series vet um you know th that was the first fight where he was actually extended past the first round the first time in his career he was actually extended past the first round and he showed decent composure you know i mean it, it didn't seem like uh he was really panicking out there was able to secure takedowns against jamie pickett and really ride out that top position land some good shots from on top but it really showed the evolution of his game even in this fight against oscar piahota uh we didn't really see a crazy pace from him right off the bat like uh, I think Oscar Piojota's kind of style really brings that out of guys, but I thought we saw a little bit more of a patient Punahale, even though that fight still ended in that first round. We didn't really see him bum rushing, uh, you know, desperately forward trying to find the chin of Oscar, but eventually he was able to find it uh, and put him out uh, about three minutes into that first round. But the kid is a thick dude he's a big dude uh and i feel like his strength is definitely going to play uh, a factor in most of his victories in his fights and i think it's going to be a big part of this fight against dushko as well too um you know he still has a little bit of work to do when it comes to sharpening up his game with more combinations rather than just blitzing forward with with big hooks and and uh you know strikes 
but it's worked out for him up until this point. Obviously, he wasn't able to put out Pickett, but we saw that he was able to adjust on the fly, uh, get the fight to the ground, and get it to a, a pace where it allows him to not really uh, gas out, but also give him an opportunity to kind of catch his breath while still controlling the fight and scoring on the judges' scorecards, which eventually that fight did end up going to, and he did win a decision in that fight. Um, I truly thought that he was a first first round robust fighter, and it's we can't really a hundred percent say that that's the type of the fighter that he is because the only time we've seen him outside of the first round, he did go out there and win a decision, and he went about it in a very uh, intelligent manner, in my opinion, which is going after the takedown, getting the fight to the ground, and kind of just riding out that top position. Uh, he seems like a very strong opponent. He seems like his explosion is very good too, in terms of being able to get to that point where he, he explodes for it with a bunch of punches, uh, you know, initiates the clinch, and then goes straight for that double leg. And more often than not is able to secure it uh Dusko, on the other hand a little bit more lighter on his feet uh uses his kicks very well too almost has a karate type of stance uh but we saw a little bit more of a patient approach from him against Dusko. uh or sorry against daquan townsend which was his last fight um that was a fight where i thought uh you know townsend would have a little bit more success being a big dude and having a ton of experience but Dusko actually kind of just squashed that he he did a good job of kind of um you know, uh, uh, corralling Townsend up against the cage, doing some good work in the clinch, and then eventually getting the fight to the ground and getting that finish in the second round. However, I do feel like there are still question marks regarding Dushko's cardio itself. Uh, he did win that fight against Teddy Ash on the Contender Series, but to me, even though he won that third round, it did seem like there were uh, opportunities for opponents to take advantage of him and, and the state that he was in that third round. Now, the majority of that Teddy Ash fight was spent up against Cage, where he was showing off a good head position in the clinch, uh, you know, have, kind of forcing his forehead into the chin and the neck area of Teddy Ash to keep him up against the cage, and then doing magnificent work to the body with his uppercuts and, and the damage that he's doing with his hands. Very, very impressive for sure. I think the kid has a ton of potential as well, too. Um, he moves better than uh, Punahale. Uh, I think he has a higher ceiling than Punahale as well, too. But at this point in time, I think uh, Soriano could absolutely pull off the upset victory here as the underdog. Um, I, I do think that uh, Puna has a ton of power in his hands. And not often I'll side with guys that seem to only have that one path to victory, which is getting guys out of there early. But that's kind of what uh, Todorovic's game was as well before coming over to the UFC. He was getting guys out of there pretty early where we didn't really get to see much of his cardio tested later in fights like the teddy ash fight went to a decision it's funny that both of their contender series fights went to a decision and that's really the only decisions that they want in their career or, or the only fights that have ever gone to decisions in their career so um i i think this is a perfect time for them to really get matched up against each other to see who might have a, a better career in the ufc but at this point in time i think punahali could land that that big punch to absolutely drop and 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 hurt todorovic even later in fights the the one qualm that i have with todorovic's stand-up game is he relies heavily on like his head movement to get him out of the way of these big shots and kind of just leaning backwards not really cutting angles well when he's trying to be defensive kind of just moving backwards and just you know pulling his head back sure it's worked for him up until this point 
But eventually, it's going to catch up to him. Just ask Anderson Silva. You know what I mean? That's how he eventually ended up losing his title and, and stopping that run that he had going through the middleweight division. And that's kind of what I'm seeing from Dusko here in terms of uh, his defense. Like, his hands are more often down, uh, more often than not down, rather than actually being up and kind of protecting from any of the shots coming his way. Uh, and he leans back a lot, and he's thinking that's going to save him more often than not. I feel like Punahale could actually land in those types of situations where, uh, you know, he's very explosive moving forward his winging shots cover so much range and i think that might catch up to dushko in this fight but even if this fight does get extended i kind of side with puno holly's ability to get the fight to the ground and we have a small sample size of that uh so it's hard to say how um how efficient he will actually be in those certain situations but i feel like puna definitely has more power than todorovic he seems like the stronger dude he should be able to bull rush his way uh into those clinch positions and possibly get those takedowns as well too um todorovic we did see some good top position from him against townsend especially dealing with uh townsend who was squirming a lot and and trying to buck his opponent off of him but todorovic did a really good job of kind of just flowing with the movements and eventually getting that tko finish uh but i think puna is going to be a different animal here so uh, i like puna i'm not sure enough to the point of actually betting him plus 140 is not a bad line especially in a fight where i think it's a little bit more 50 50 so if people do feel that way there is a bit of an edge and a and value on puna in that line and that's where i'm kind of leaning again i'm not sure if i'll bet it but i think he has a very solid shot of going out there and beating todorovic and, and springing this upset so i do like puna to win this fight i think he gets it done inside the distance as well too i think he has a ton of power in his hands his durability is off the charts too um yeah uh, I'm, I'm not sure why people are riding home about Todorovic if you get it at a pick'em line I understand at that point but at that minus 150 minus 160 range I do favor uh Puna Hale too so I'm gonna go with Puna to win this fight via KO probably first or second round I think he lands that bomb uh but I also think that he overpowers uh Todorovic as well so if this fight does get into deeper waters I could absolutely see him being successful with his strength getting Todorovic down uh and I don't think that Todorovic will get away with his clinch that he's been able to be successful with with his past opponents i don't think he'll be able to do that to puna at least not enough to you know score rounds or anything like that i think we'll see a little bit more from puna here so i'm going with puna i think he definitely live to win this fight as an underdog he is a live underdog like i'll say uh but yeah i'll go with puna to win this fight first or second round ko Joaquin Buckley versus Alessio Di Carico. We got minus 270 on Joaquin Buckley and plus 230 on Alessio Di Carico. Let's start off with the sensation, Mr. Joaquin Buckley, who's coming off uh, a victory over Jordan Wright, but that was uh, right after uh, he pretty much just blew up on the map after that crazy KO that he had over Impa Kasanganai where he just landed a beautiful spinning back kick after Kasanganai caught his foot, uh, and it blew the whole world on fire. Like, even when you're getting guys like Kanye West tweeting out or Instagramming out videos of your knockout, you know you've absolutely made it. And I'm sure, you know, his his social media accounts have definitely seen it, and, and even the way that the UFC is pushing him, they've definitely seen it. Like, just for example, right before the Jordan Wright fight is uh, is about to start, like I'm talking about after the fighter introductions, like after Bruce Buffer calls both of them out, they quickly show a replay of his knockout of Impak Sanganai, and then it fades out into them starting the fight, which is absolutely crazy. Like if I'm Jordan Wright and I'm standing there staring across from freaking Joaquin Buckley and I see on the screens that they're playing the replay of that knockout that he had in his last fight I'm like what the fuck guys I'm about to go fight this guy and you want to you want to show me that 
you know, maybe if you're a, a positive or a glass half full type of athlete and you're the one in the cage there with Buckley, uh, you're just like, you know what, I'm going to use that as motivation. I want to go and take this guy's shine. And unfortunately for Jordan Wright, he was not able to do so that night. Um, and I was one of the suckers that did take Jordan Wright around that plus 200 range as I felt like the, the hype job of uh, Joaquin Buckley is in. I still believe the hype job is there, hence why they're feeding him a guy that's 0-3 in his last three fights. More often than not, UFC goes out there and cuts guys like these. However, they see an opportunity where they can continue to cash in on this Joaquin Buckley thing. However, I don't think it's going to cash in for them uh, in the manner that they're expecting, which is a highlight reel knockout. We're talking about Alessio Di Carico, who hasn't been knocked out to this point in his however, 17 MMA fights that he's had, never been knocked out in his career. Now, he did get dropped in his last fight against Zach Cummings in the last second of the fight, which possibly could have led to his first ever knockout loss if that fight maybe went five or ten seconds more, maybe even five seconds. If he gave that five more seconds, Zach Cummings would have rushed him uh, and the referee definitely would have stopped, stopped that. That was a buzzer beater of a knockout. But even then, he wasn't like completely out. Like He got hurt, but he was pretty much right back to his feet. And obviously, he was stumbling all over the place, but he's never really been put cold out. However... The one thing I don't really like about DiCarico's game is his ability to continuously march uh, or, or give up his back foot. Like he's always the one on his back foot more often than not. Uh, in the Mahmoud Muradov fight, there were a couple times where he was the one moving forward, but that was more so Muradov just kind of playing into that counter-striking game. Now DiCarico, on the other hand, he doesn't do as well in that. Like he has a nasty... Uh, uh, body kick from his southpaw position whenever he's in that position or in that stance but outside of that like you know it has a couple combinations here and there kind of low output like if you're losing a striking battle to zach cummings it's probably not the best way to go like zach cummings most of his victories have come via submission and not often does he go well he does have a couple knockouts on his record as well but in terms of like going out there and and having a stand-up fight for 15 minutes that should have been de carico's fight Unfortunately for him, he comes out on the losing end there, and that was the second or his third straight loss in a row. Now they do share a a similar loss to Kevin Holland. Obviously, Joy King Buckley got knocked out by him. Uh, Kevin Holland went to a decision with um with D. Crico. So I think the I think how this fight will probably play out is Joy King Buckley pretty much just setting the pace of this fight, moving forward the entire time throwing his bombs kind of like the Kevin Holland fight however I expect him to hit more um be more successful with the shots and not have as much success on the back foot like Kevin Holland did as uh D Carico is going to have in this fight so uh, I do like Joaquin Buckley to win this fight I do think that he gets it done I think he he wins a decision which is why I think that I think the last time I looked at it was plus 250 or plus 275 for uh Joaquin Buckley to win this fight via de decision and I kind of think that's the way that I'm going to be going here I'm not 100% sure if I'll make it a, a, a um uh, an official bet or anything like that but uh, i do think it's a solid p uh, parlay piece uh, if you guys are looking to put in uh, buckley into parlays i don't mind that at this point in time i'm still calling his bluff in terms of thinking that he is a bit of a height job uh, but you can't uh, you know discredit some of the victories that he's had recently so i will give him some credit i do think he's a talented guy he's 26 years old so he's definitely growing he could be adding more things to his arsenal uh, but i think this is a perfectly made fight for him uh 
to go out there and and possibly get a knockout. I, I don't see it happen. Historically, we just haven't seen Decorico get knocked out. We've seen him go out there and fight big punchers uh, like uh, Oluwale Bamboche, a, a Julian Marquez, even Joaquin Buckley is, is definitely up there too. But we'll see if uh, Buckley's able to find that chin and get him out of there. The one thing that does concern me about Decorico, though, however, is if he decides to change it up. Like if he goes there for goes for a takedown, I feel like he could be successful with a takedown. However, in fights that he has gone for takedowns, he hasn't really been more successful in keeping these guys down. And that's where I think the issue is. I think Buckley's quite good at getting back to his feet and then re-establishing his game, which is moving forward the entire time, throwing big, heavy shots, uh, and keeping Decreco on the back foot. So I, that's where I think that Buckley wins this fight. Minus 270, a little bit chalky. I completely understand that. But uh, I think the angle here could potentially be Joaquin Buckley to win this fight via decision. And that's probably the way that I'm going to be going. So uh, I'll go Joaquin Buckley to win this fight via decision uh, and, and continue this this three-fight winning streak that he's on. Unfortunately for the UFC and the hype machine that they're trying to build around this guy, I don't think that they're going to get that highly real knockout that they're looking for to continuously build and, and bring this guy up the ranks and try to you know get, get the popularity behind him a little bit more. But yeah, I will be going with Joaquin Buckley to win this fight via decision. Santiago Panzanibio versus Li Jingliang. We got minus 280 on the returning Santiago Ponzinibbio and plus 240 on the leech Li Jingliang. So let's start off with the Li side, who's coming up with loss to Neil Magny last time around as a minus 175 favorite. A lot of people were writing off the underdog and the, the veteran in Neil Magny thinking that this was the time for Li Jingliang to really, uh, you know, pan out and become that uh, or fulfill the potential that we saw from him several years ago when he first made his uh, debut in the UFC. A lot of people are high on Lee. He did take a couple of losses early in his UFC career. However, he managed to spring together two, three straight victories, uh, two of them over David Zavada and Elizio Zaleski Dos Santos, who Dos Santos was on a, a bit of a tear himself too before running into to the leech. Uh, Zaleski was actually a minus 250, minus 255 favorite going into that, and the leech did end up springing the upset there, but unfortunately wasn't able to get the job done against the veteran Neo Magni. Neil Magny went out there and absolutely big brothered Li Jingliang and actually showcased, you know, cardio and, and the grappling skills that Neil Magny actually has that a lot of people were overlooking in this matchup. Now, Li, he seems to be that guy that really likes to get things done with his hands, not to mention that sidekick that he landed perfectly on David Zavada to actually drop him and get that finish near the end of that fight. And even in the Elizio Zaleski Dos Santos fight, showed great power in his hands, eventually putting away Zaleski, I believe, with roughly nine seconds left in the fight. So he shows that he has power in his hands for sure. However, more often than not, we don't really see... Um, uh, as as many finishes uh, on his side, at least in terms of uh, hitting that over one and a half, which is a spot that I'm most confident in this fight. Um, kind of surprised that the the odds makers actually went with the one and a half rather than the two and a half. Uh, I'd be a little bit more skeptical if we had to go those extra five minutes. However, seven and a half minutes I think is a great amount of time for this type of fight. So. The Lee, uh, the leech. We know he he likes to rely on his striking and his hands, but he isn't really super high output. Uh, but also really looks to be a a little bit more patient with his approach. And when he does throw, he does throw with a lot of bad intentions. Um, most of his striking does come from his hands, uh, w which is his primary approach. Um, but he really just tries to feint and looks for openings on his opponents. He rolls very well with shots as well too, which is why he he's only been finished once in the UFC. 
which was over five years ago, and that was only by a rear naked choke by Keita Nakamura. On the flip side, we got Santiago Ponzinibbio, who, who hasn't fought since he beat Neil Magny. Uh, I believe that was a, a headlining fight he had against him, Bueno, bueno Eris, uh, Eris uh, Argentina, uh, where he headlined uh, the fight night there against Neil Magny uh, in front of his hometown, in front of his home crowd, and was able to put together a masterful performance, eventually putting away Neil Magny in that fourth round what was his his approach pretty much in that fight was the leg kicks and we've seen that in his past fights as well too where he beats up the lead leg of his opponents and then lets his hands go behind that he did it against Nordin Taleb did it against Mike Perry uh, and absolutely did it to uh, perfection against Neil Magny as well too he's a very educated striker has a great one two down the middle uses his jab very well too but primarily it seems like his kick game is what leads him to his victories more often than not he, he's with a great training camp down there in American Top Team, uh, been getting in some good work there with high-level coaches, high-level training partners, and I feel like they'll have him prepared well enough to go up against uh, Li Jingliang, especially after you know being off as long as he has. I believe the last time he fought was in uh, the, the ending of 2018, so we're talking about close to, well, just over two years uh, and roughly three months of a layoff for Santiago. What kept him out of those fights or, or kept him out for that long was an infection in his knee of some sort luckily for him he managed to battle back from that and is now uh ready to to resume his mma career especially when it's kind of at his pinnacle as well too like coming off a big one over neo magni especially as a headliner definitely puts you up there as one of the top prospects in that in that division not even just prospects he's fully uh you know um he's fully uh panned out into that potential that we fully that we had from heck he was even supposed to fight uh robbie lawler at ufc 254 at the end of 2019 however he gets pulled from that due to the infection uh and now he's kind of just dipping his toes back in the water in terms of getting back into the ufc i think this is a great matchup for him however i'm just not so sold on him at that minus 280 line especially coming after such a, a long layoff now i'm not entirely sure how bad the infection was or how much of a detriment it's been to him but the fact that he's actually coming back and has taken off the necessary amount of time i think this is a perfect time to uh for him to come back however I, I, i'm just not the most certain on actually wagering money on him or even putting him putting him in a parlay which is why like i said near uh, near the beginning of this breakdown which is why I like the over one and a half. I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit more of an across approach from Santiago to kind of get his feet wet, get that ring rust off, uh, and hopefully in that amount of time he doesn't get knocked out by Lee or anything like that. But uh, again, the last time he got finished was by Lorenz Larkin back in 2015. So we're talking about over five years for both of these guys since they last got finished. In terms of how often they're over one and a half uh, hit uh, in the UFC, we're talking about 15 out of 22 times, or I believe, sorry, it's 17 out of 22 times that these guys actually hit the over one and a half, which again, surprised why the odds makers didn't set it at two and a half compared to the one and a half. But at that minus 165, minus 170-ish range for that over one and a half, that's a spot that I really like. I can see them kind of feeling each other out, uh, not really overcommitting on anything too much. Uh, and again, they roll very well with their shots too. Ponzinibbio has been dropped, I believe, over five times in his UFC career, whereas Li Jingliang hasn't been dropped that often. I think it's been one or two times uh, up until this point. So uh, very hard guys to put away but good guys that uh, good at putting guys away too and that you, more often than not when guys are good at 
you know, putting opponents away, but are, are harder to put away themselves. More often than not, we see these guys go a little bit longer into their fights, uh, especially being a little bit more cautious as well, too. So I think both guys are quite durable. My the slight little bit of reservations and concern I have is the the, the layoff for Santiago. Uh, I'm hoping it ha didn't have too much of an impact on his durability. I'm hoping it doesn't start too slow where he just you know just just tries to tries to get comfortable once again and then gets caught by something from from lee but uh, i just don't see that happening i truly think that the the over is the spot here the juice on santiago is a little bit too high and uh, i think the skill discrepancy when it comes to the striking game is a little bit too wide between lee and santiago to truly go out there and 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 place a bet on lee jingleong i'm not going to hate on anybody or or talk down on anybody that's taking Lee here, as I do think that this could be a prime spot to take advantage of a minus or uh, of a plus two forty favorite or plus two forty underdog in Lee. Uh, however, I just think that if Santiago shows up with with uh, you know not missing a step or anything like that, or even like fifty percent of what we've seen before, he could absolutely go out there and 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 win a decision here against the Leech. So I'll go with. Santiago Ponzinibbio to win this fight via decision, but the spot that I like most in this fight is the over one and a half. Carlos Condit versus Matt Brown. We got minus 160 on the Natural Born Killer and plus 140 on Matt the Immortal Brown. Let's start off with Carlos Condit, who's coming off a victory over Court McGee. It was his first victory since he defeated Tiago Alves way back in May of 2015, uh, where he finished him with a, a beautiful elbow that actually broke the nose of Tiago Alves wish they were forced to stop the fight in between rounds there um but he's been on a very tumultuous run uh you know giving up fights to um uh Damian Maya, Neil Magny, Ale uh Cowboy Oliveira and Michael Chiesa then finally getting back on the winning track against Court McGee but uh in the fight with McGee it was more so McGee fighting the type of fight that um Condit needed to win that fight uh, and not really implementing the style that we've known and loved from Court McGee, which is that grinding style of just pushing guys up against the cage, getting takedowns, and just having an overall MMA game. For some reason, he just went out there and just went strike for strike with Carlos Condit, and that's not how you want to go about it, especially when Condit's able to get out of the way of the big shots that are coming his way from Court McGee and kind of just get his game going with kicks and you know body punches and and just the the style that that uh, Carlos Condit brings to the table. You know, changes uh, stances very fluidly, uh, throws kicks and punches in combinations as well too, which very much helps in terms of volume and, and scoring on the judges' eyes. Um, and and yeah, that was just a very unfortunate performance from Court McGee. And I'd be very, very upset if I was one of those people that took that minus 130, minus 140 on Court McGee in that fight, hoping that he'd try to drag this fight to the ground. Because one thing that we've come to know about Carlos Condit is that he's just never going to work on his takedown defense. It, well, he, let me let me backtrack a little bit. He might work on the takedown defense, but it just never shows in the cage. Like it's pretty easy to take him down, and more often than not, his opponents have found that method of victory where they just continuously take him down uh, and you know play in his guard and, and keep top control, land some good ground and pound, and, and just score in that way. Whether they're able to get a submission eventually or get the finish themselves or just go on to a decision victory itself. The one issue there, I think it's, is, it is because Carlos Conner is so comfortable off of his back and he thinks he's going to be able to catch somebody off of his back with his jiu-jitsu because he has had near opportunities against opponents, most notably and most recently against Michael Chiesa where he was able to throw up a triangle um, uh, against Chiesa and, and it was pretty, pretty tight. Unfortunately, Michael Chiesa was able to uh, 
you know explode out of that position and, and not get the you know not tap to, to that armbar. So um, the last time Carlos Condit actually did submit somebody was over 13 years ago against Carlo Prater in the WEC. So he's never even gotten a submission victory in the UFC. So um, not sure why he continues to play that game and think that he's going to be able to pull something off or pull off a reversal or whatever it is. He does his best work on his feet, but how, uh, unfortunately, he just never shows the urgency of getting back to his feet. So that's where I think the issue comes with uh, with Carlos Condit. He looks great on the feet when uh, people are allowing him to play his game. Unfortunately for him, I don't think Matt Brown's going to allow him to play that game. Now let's go over to the Matt Brown side of thing, who's coming off a loss um, to Miguel Baeza, who's a bright up-and-coming star. I think Baeza has top 5 to top 10 potential, so to lose to a kid like that, especially you know closing in on 40 years old, not to mention today is Matt Brown's 40th birthday. I'm recording this on January 10th, which is the Sunday before fight week, and... Uh, yeah, he, he it's tough for him to go out there and try to beat a young up-and-comer. Luckily for him, though, he's fighting Carlos Conda, who himself has had a ton of miles on his on his record. He's coming into his 45th fight, um, so it's not a young, spry little kid that Matt Brown needs to worry about across from him. It's been the complete opposite that Matt Brown has been able to go on a two-fight winning streak before the Baeza fight where he put out Diego Sanchez and he put out Ben Saunders as well too. Um, and then before that, lost Donald Cerrone and Jake Ellenberger. Um, especially that Ellenberger loss, he lost as a heavy favorite. I'm sure a lot of people got their parlays busted that night as well too. Um, but yeah, I think Matt Brown brings that style that is uh, very, you know, very effective against a guy like Carlos Condit, which is stay in his face, don't give him that space that he needs to get his his striking off, and, and just drown him. You know, what I mean, just just push him up against the cage, use some dirty boxing. Uh, but even if it's not the clinch or the dirty boxing, just continuously press forward and uh, you know land shots. Don't discriminate to the face or to the body or even to the legs. And we've seen that Matt Brown still has a little bit of power in his hands that he could potentially hurt Carlos Condit with and drop as well. Too. Um, Matt Brown obviously has been susceptible to body punches and kicks in the past too so that's something that we're always going to have to keep our eye on and Carlos Condit does have a good kicking game so that's something that we should uh, you know definitely make a note of when going into this fight however I think that Matt Brown given his style and and what we've seen from him as of late and even though he got knocked out in his last fight I think that's kind of baked into this line personally I would line it a little bit closer to an even uh, type of fight I'm not sure where people think Carlos Condit is just because he got a victory over Court McGee last time around but again that was due to Court McGee playing the game that Carlos Condit needed to uh, to get his hand raised in that fight I don't think Matt Brown's going to allow him to do that I, I'd be surprised if we see Matt Brown just chilling on the outside within kicking range within Carlos Condit range if that's what you want to call it uh, but I think that we're going to see Brown pushing forward pretty much the entire fight and and really taking it to Carlos Condit which should uh, you know allow Matt Brown to get his hand raised I will give Carlos Condit some some daps in terms of his durability. Like he, you know, it's been a long time since we've seen him actually knocked out. Most of his losses have come via submission as of late. And I don't think that Matt Brown is going to go out there and submit him either. So uh, it's either Matt Brown via TKO, which I, I still am a little bit hesitant about. But I do like the decision uh, for Matt Brown a little bit more than that. So the side that I'm going to be going with is Matt Brown, uh, you know, taking it to Carlos Condit, staying in his face, uh, not letting him breathe, not letting him get comfortable, and I think he ends up getting a decision victory. Uh, and uh, I, I think that once people start seeing this fight play out, they're going to be like, fuck, 
of course, this is the way the fight's going to go. Just as Carlos Condit's fight against Court McGee went. Like, within that first minute, you're just like, damn, of course this is the the way the fight's going to go. And I think with this Matt Brown thing, it's it's going to be the same way. I think a lot of people are expecting Matt Brown to go out there and get knocked out. However, Carlos Condit, not really like a one-punch knockout type of kind of guy. Uh, again, we he finished Thiago Alves. Um, before that, he finished Martin Cabment way back in 2013. Uh, but since then, just never really had success in terms of rocking, dropping, and, and finishing anybody. Uh, and even the Thiago Alves finish, that was like a, you know, a beautifully placed elbow that that cracked the nose of uh, of of Thiago Alves, and eventually it was kind of like an injury TKO, if anything. And then the Martin Catman one, that was like a Max Holloway type of finish, where it's just an accumulation of strikes, and then once that fourth round hit, he was able to kind of overwhelm Martin Catman and get the victory that way as well too. So I do like Matt Brown to win this fight. I do like him as an underdog at at plus one forty. The only flaw I see on on his side is the fact that he's forty years old. But given the fact that he's only fighting uh, Carlos Condit in this point in time, I don't think it's too much to really harp on. So uh, I like Matt Brown. I think he wins this fight via decision. And I think he's a solid underdog play as well. Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater. We got minus 160 currently on Max Holloway and plus 140 on Calvin Cater. And we've seen this line actually come down a little bit more towards the Calvin Cater side as this... uh, Actually, the new year hasn't even begun. I have, I'm actually recording this on December 30th, uh, you know, a good amount of time before this fight is actually supposed to go down. So hopefully we don't actually have any pullouts or anything like that, which would affect this fight from actually happening. Um, but yeah, um, I'm seeing a lot more love for Calvin Cater now. And uh, I'm starting to understand as to why. So when I put out my leans for my guys over on the Patreon, uh, I had initially said that minus 200 on Max Holloway pre-tape looks like it's a very good spot where it could be, you know, uh, a solid spot for people to take advantage of a Max Holloway at really good odds. And then once right before I got into actually doing the tape uh, and doing the research for it, I saw him down to like minus 170, minus 165. And I'm like, okay. Let me let me get my work in and we can see if this is truly a spot that deserves to be, you know, around those odds or even higher if possible. After I started getting into it, I, this is probably the deepest I've gone into a fight, uh, given the fact that it's just so tough to call. Uh, but once I came out on the other side, uh, I, I have a decent amount of confidence in the underdog here. So the reason I like Calvin Cater um, you know, he's coming off a win over Dan Ige, which was his first uh, five-round main event fight in the UFC, but it was actually his second main event overall. His fight before, or uh, yeah, his fight before that, um, or a couple fights before that, he actually fought Zabit Magomed Sharapov. I believe it was two fights before that. Uh, he fought Zabit uh, in a uh, in a three-round main event, which actually got put together pretty short notice. Uh, if most people remember, that fight night was supposed to be headlined by Alexander Volkov and... Um, and Alistair Overeem, unfortunately, Overeem pulls out. Volkov gets a short notice. Greg Hardy, uh, obviously, Greg Hardy's not down to go five rounds, so they they demote uh, Volkov down to the co-main event. They push up Zabit all the way up to the, the the main event. However, he doesn't want the three round or the five rounds. And obviously, Calvin Cater and his teams wanted that five rounds. Unfortunately, Zabit obviously being the be all end all in this situation uh that they, they didn't allow that to happen and unfortunately for cater uh it being a three round he did have a really good third round against the beat uh unfortunately he could not really deal with the the unorthodox nature of the attack and approach from Zabit in those first two rounds. So uh, he dropped that. However, he comes back, knocks out Jeremy Stevens in a brutal fashion, beautiful step and elbow to kind of um you know um 
take away the the power that was coming his way from uh, a counter from Jeremy Stevens, drops and wobbles Stevens, and eventually finishes him with some beautiful ground and pound and a beautiful elbow as well to follow up on the ground to to, to cut him up and and just absolutely have him splattering blood. Uh, one of the more disgusting cuts that I've ever seen, or at least one of the more disgusting aftermaths of a cut that I've seen in terms of it just absolutely leaking out of uh, uh, Jeremy Stevens' forehead. Uh, and then Calvin Carey comes back and and uh, headlines a fight a fight night on Fight Island and goes five hard rounds against Dan Ige. He only really dropped that second round, but the first three, four, and five, fifth rounds were very, very much in his favor. His striking looked on point. Uh, the only concerning part to me was I was hoping that he'd land a little bit more than 105 strikes. And, and that's where my hesitancy here comes with Calvin Cater because technically... He's a much crisper striker than Max Holloway. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's why we're seeing the amount of love come in for Cater because people are really in uh, in the know regarding what Cater's capabilities are with his hands. And even his kicks, too. His kicks aren't too bad, but the most amount of his damage does come from his uh, from his hands. And they're so crisp, crisp, so sharp. And even his jab, too, just, just a piston down the middle, uh, really busting dudes up with that jab for sure. Um... Now, now the issue with Max Holloway, who's coming off of two straight losses now to Alexander Volkanovsky, both title fights, both five-round fights. The second one, a little bit more in the favor of Holloway, but still the judges ended up giving it to Volkanovsky. It truly comes down to that third round, even though one of the judges actually ended up giving, I believe it was round four or round five to Holloway. Uh, but in terms of like MMA decisions after like 2,100 fans scoring cards, it, it came down to that third round. Rounds one and two, obviously Holloway. Rounds four and five, Volkanovski. But that round three was super, super close. Like you could even give it a 10-10. And unfortunately, that fight would be a draw. And we don't like draws in this day and age. However, uh, I truly think that fight was deserving of being a draw. Now, the fight before that... He dealt with a, a weird stylistic matchup against Volkanovski where uh, Volkanovski really you know, decided to, to beat up that lead leg of Holloway and Holloway was forced to fight out of his secondary stance for the majority of that fight due to just the amount of damage that he took in that, on that lead foot. And, and the, the interesting thing about Volkanovski's game plan with attacking that lead foot is he kind of was waiting for or he's kind of using the feints of the leg kick to kind of open up his hands against Holloway or even using his hands as a, as a counter for Holloway whenever he came in and he got a lot of uh you know the better of a lot of the exchanges hence why he ended up winning that first uh, that first fight the second fight we saw Holloway come back and almost go for like a a tit-for-tat approach with Volkanovski anytime Volkanovski threw a kick Holloway followed up with one of his own he kind of just wanted to to match Holloway or sorry Volkanovski's output and then some unfortunately for him he still wasn't able to get his hand raised that night um before that he took uh took a took on uh, Frankie Edgar, beats him in a decision. Uh, but the one kind of narrative that I found during this this crazy run of Holloway, um, especially after winning the belt, um, he's fighting a lot of guys that are shorter than him. And uh, I'm not saying that's the be-all, end-all of this uh, this this fight with Cato, who's going to be matching him in height. But the last time somebody fought, somebody fought Holloway, who was the same height or a or taller than him was when Holloway fought Cole Miller back uh, in 2015. So we're talking close to six years since he's fought somebody who's close to his size, or at least his size or taller. So I think that's going to be uh, a kind of a detriment here for Holloway, who it seems like he really 
he kind of depends on his range a little bit to get out of the shots and slip shots of most of the guys uh, that he's facing because they're just slightly shorter and not able to really uh, to match that reach or match that height uh, of Holloway. So Holloway had a lot of success in terms of slipping a lot of the punches or even just kind of slipping enough that he would, didn't take the brunt of his opponent's punches. Now we've seen him hurt, we've seen him rocked, but we've never seen him dropped, which is crazy that we've never seen a knockdown recorded in Max Holloway's career. Uh, but Dustin Poirier heard him a bunch of times in their fights. Uh, Jose Aldo even heard him a couple times in the first and second round of their fights. And then we obviously saw Aldo's cardio drop off. And that's where Holloway starts to really thrive, just as he did in the Anthony Pettis fight as well, too. But the Dustin Poirier fight is a fight that we really saw what happens when he goes up against a striker that is much more technical than him and can actually last a five-round pace with him. You know, guys like Frankie Edgar are able to handle that pace too, but they don't have nearly as good of a striking game as a Dustin Poirier or even in this case, a Calvin Cater. Uh, the Jose Aldo fight did not have the cardio to hold up with the pace that a Holloway pushes. Now, I think that Cater has the uh, has the ability to follow up and, and, and continue with the same pace that he has from round one to round five. Uh, but the the volume is kind of concerning to me holloway is a high volume guy he'll throw you know over 100 strikes in a five round fight any given day um cater on the other hand he outstruck uh ea by 20 strikes 105 to 85 i believe the numbers were uh but i expected him to you know kind of have a little bit more output against a guy who technically is just not on his level when it comes to the striking game now holloway Technically, again, not on the level of Kader, uh, but again, he can get away with his pressure, his pace, and his cardio. I just don't know if that's going to be enough for him here against Kader. He might be able to out-volume Kader, but it's going to come down to the more damaging strikes, and I got to give that edge to Kader here. Uh, we saw in the Dustin Poirier fight that Holloway did out slightly outstrike Dustin Poirier, especially in a couple of those rounds, but... Um, those rounds we saw Dustin Poirier land some significant shots, hurt, rock, uh, but not drop. That's the issue there. We've never seen Holloway truly drop from punches, but we've seen him rocked and stunned for sure. And that's where I think that Cater's going to have to uh, go to take this fight. Like if he goes out there, lands some big shots, we've seen Holloway hurt. At a certain point, that chin of his is going to break. And Cater uh, could absolutely be the guy to do that. So my 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 confidence is on the Cater side. And I, I feel like he's on the up and up. Um, you know, Holloway is still a young guy, even though he has a bunch of fight miles on him. I believe he's only 29 years old. Calvin Cater, on the other hand, is still like trying to find his footing in the K or in the UFC. He's had setbacks to Hanato Maikano, who just had a way better kicking game and absolutely chewed up the front leg of Cater, which really took off the the output, the power, and made him very hesitant. We don't see a uh, a kick heavy game from Holloway, so I don't think we need to worry too much about that. The only re reason we saw Holloway kicking as much as we did. In his last fight, it was more of a response to the, the first fight with Volkanovski, where he wanted to match the same type of game plan and then try to put a little bit more oomph into it. Um, now, if we see Holloway come out there and go Jose Aldo on Cater, I'd be a little bit concerned if I had some money on Cater now. Um, I just don't think that's historically what we've seen from Holloway, so it's hard to say that that's what we can expect from him here. He's mainly a hands type of guy, a couple of kicks here and there, but not Hanato Moikano level kicks, and that's where the issue is. So I think that Cater being a little bit more slick on the feet, a little bit better with his punches, um, you know, matching the range now, uh, being the bigger guy in terms of reach, sorry, and, and it kind of being the same height as Max Holloway, I think that's going to throw Holloway off. So uh, I, I like Cater here. 
I wouldn't even be surprised if he gets a knockout too because Holloway's been hurt a lot. I know he's never been put away and a lot of people might rag on me for even saying that Kader has a potential to finish Holloway, but he has a, a mean striking game. He has some good power. Holloway is very hittable. And dare I say, Holloway has a little bit of that tall man defense syndrome where he doesn't really care too much about what's coming his way because he's so tall. More, more often than not, he's taller than his, his opponents and he's able to get out of the way of those. Um, that's where it gets interesting for me. So uh, um, I'm still not 100% sure if I'm going to be making the bet on Cater at plus 140 as well. It's a little bit sketchy. Um, I'm interested to see once fight week kicks off if that Holloway love is going to come in uh, due to his popularity and if we see the line start to move towards Holloway again. If that's the case, I might be forced to make a play on Cater here. Uh, but I am going to pick Cater. I think he wins this fight. I think he has a solid opportunity to finish this fight too. Uh, but I will ultimately take him to win this fight via decision. Uh, and yeah, just just slicker hands, slicker boxing, uh, decent chin, um, uh, ever-improving game. Uh, that that New England cartels uh, crew is is on a bit of a tear right now, especially with Rob Font uh, just finishing Marlon Moraes uh, in the first round, especially in his last uh, in the last UFC event, the December nineteenth event. Uh, so they're literally going back to back on events with this New England cartel team, and uh, now uh, you know Cater getting this main event spot. He knows this is a spot for him to go out there and and really establish himself uh, in that top three uh, of this division, and he's so deserving because he's a very high level talent and i think this is the perfect fight for him to go out there and showcase that so uh i'm picking cater uh again wouldn't be surprised by by a finish uh but i will take him to be uh to win by decision just to be on the safe side uh but yeah i i got calvin cater to win this fight via decision and that's a wrap on the breakdowns i appreciate you guys checking out the episode as always if you haven't already make sure you hit the subscribe hit the like drop a comment as well too if you guys want to, to chit chat a little bit more um obviously check out the patreon link is in the description below uh and yeah that's really about it i'll be back on friday dropping the next podcast on friday for the wednesday card the january 20th card uh that breakdown will be out in full on friday however over the next couple of days i'll be dropping them on the patreon as well too uh you know breakdown by breakdown starting on monday uh i will start uh, dropping those for the patreon members so if you want early access to the breakdowns make sure you guys hit up the patreon and i might even have some bets for those cards as well too so check out the patreon for that as well again everything is in this uh, description below Make sure you guys check that shit out. And uh, yeah, good luck on your best this weekend. Hope you guys enjoy the, the new setup. Uh, again, still waiting for some more decorative stuff to come in. Um, damn it, Canada Post. But uh, yeah, that's about it. I uh, appreciate you guys checking out the episode and good luck on your bets this weekend.